Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Episode 70, let's go. Can't believe I love the 70s. <laughs> there we go. This is the start of the 70s for you, Mike. What a decade. When we get to 79, you quit the pod. 70 podcasts. Yeah, man. 70. Yeah. Fair play to us. Fair play to us. Oh, yeah. Bloody hard graft. Huge congratulations to the three of us from... from Huge three congratulations for a, an enormous amount of... Three boys, mate. Three boys who worked their socks off. <laughs> For nearly over a 12 months now, without uh, fail, he spends four hours every week in his garage. That's not included in the film he's got to watch. <laughs> he can't eat while he's doing it, though, which is a bonus. My granddad did, six, my granddad did 60 hours a week underground. <laughs> Could he eat a banana while he was doing it? Mike Bubbins is a modern grafter. <laughs> Look at him. He's the pit pony of podcasting. He <laughs> is an absolute slave to that podcast. Imagine being a fucking pit pony. I've been in those stables in uh, Bin Big Pit. Yeah. Now there's our life. At least the miners came out every day. Yeah, that's the opposite of your rodeo, isn't it? They kept me on there 50 weeks of the year. Yeah. Well, Christmas up, were they? I saw a very sad (laughs) clip once where a pit pony, where they filmed a pit pony being brought above ground for his two-week holiday. Mm. And obviously... I mean... He's on the train going to Barry Allen, was he? But I... (laughs) I didn't... Just sitting I, on the beach. I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't think a horse could look happy. Kick, kick me this, quick on his hat. But this horse looked absolutely delighted. Yeah, my was chuffed. And I thought, oh, so that's what a happy. Well, horse my looks granddad's like. dad, well, the, the person that we all thought was my granddad's dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was yeah. obviously was was David Jones, but he was known as uh, Die Ivy because his pit pony. Each each sort of miner had their own pony they worked with. Yeah. So his pit pony was called Ivy. So he was known as Die Ivy. And when they used to come out, when they finally retired, they brought them above ground, and they, there was a, there was a few little sanctuaries around Wales, and they we used to go and live out their uh, their toilet years before we turned them into dog food to say thank you. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. You are now chum. <laughs> oh, <God>. chum. <laughs> no, not even Caesar. No, 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 pedigree yeah, chum. No, always. No, no, this is pedigree chum. Bog standard. <laughs> Apologies to pedigree chum. a lot. <laughs> quite tough. Quite chewy, I'd imagine. But, uh, you know, he has, to be, he has to be put on a bloody coal truck for 30 years, to be fair to him. Oh. Yeah, we were down there. When we did Big Pit, went down there with Kelly. It was a romantic early date. I thought I'd take it on a coal man. <laughs> Welsh dating scene. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Then we're doing a tour of Cardiff Docks. Then we're doing the steelworks in Ebu Vale. Yeah. And then next week, we're going to go to West Wales and you're going to milk 150 cows. <laughs> I got you a keyring. Look, it's made from uh, the lungs of a pit pony that died of pneumocordiosis. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> Rock hard. Yeah, so we went down there. But they, So where the air came into the colliery, the sort of clean air shaft, they put the stables next to that. Oh, okay. The theory being that the, 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 the horses, because they were down there all the, the time, breeze. had the first go on the fresh air. Yeah. So they had the miners had the, had the air after the horses. Then. Oh, so a stank of horses as well. Horse, so, yeah. you get stable air coming into you while you're underground. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah. Thanks. So the vents came in past the stables first, so you'd have had all that. Dung. Yeah. You stink of dung. God. And oh, you're getting your lungs full of coal dust. What a way to make a living, huh? Still 70 episodes. 70. That's yeah, what I'm saying. Also. I mean, my granddad <laughs> never had to bloody think of, you know, stuff off the top of his head. two clips a week. Exactly. He didn't know what an RSS feed was. And a documentary every three he weeks. He didn't have to pretend to read a book every three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> this one's still in the packaging. I think. <laughs> this one, what's it saying? I don't know, it's just twelve ninety nine. Do you know what that means? <laughs> um, <laughs> have you opened it? It has changed our perspective. Occasionally a documentary I was considering watching for this will be moved from Amazon Prime. And I will use words to Izzy like unfair, a disgrace. <laughs> Scandalous! <laughs> How can they do this to me? I love sports docs, but I sort of I watch them. If I watch a great doc now, but it's not my turn for two weeks, I'm a bit gutted. I think well, I got to sit on this now for two weeks. Can you watch them for pleasure? Well, I do because I, I, if I'm doing my exercise, I'll, I'll watch them on the bike because they're they're good. Okay. It's good to focus on them when you you know. I don't I don't go out on the road on the bike, do I? So yeah, true. I went for a 20 mile bike ride. Did you? Very nice. Yeah, well, well done. Yeah. That's very cool. 31 degrees. I went at midday. Silly decision. Oh, British. Um, How British do you want to be? Yeah, I felt fine when I got off the bike, but then I was eating a sandwich and realised I was trembling. So, uh... <laughs> oh, it's not good, man. <laughs> I couldn't face it. Ellie, my little girl had uh, her last rugby training session on Sunday. Yeah. So that finished by 10.30. Cause then it started again hotter and hotter and hotter. I thought, oh, here we go. And then by yesterday... The peak of it, so it was like 33 degrees at one point. And Ben was supposed to have rugby league training last night. And they will train. I mean, they, they're hardcore, the rugby league. Yes. Guys. We got a text like an hour before saying, it's too, too hard, guys. We can't, yeah. do, we can't do this today. <laughs> Although Snake Brand, mate, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't get money off Snake Brand, so I can say this. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not angling for cash. Just like spreading the tingle train good news. But I mean, the, the number of female listeners who've discovered it, and saying that you know if you've got sweaty if you've got sweaty tits is the bomb apparently, <laughs> and that's not sexist. You could have sweaty. No, I, tits I've got you know. yeah. I'm happy to take yeah. this advice on board. I've got a, I've got a small fold under my pectoral area. <laughs> <laughs> Drop up weight back on again. I met a cynic, you wouldn't I? Yeah, yeah. They reopened the pubs and everything got a bit easier going, and it's very easily done, isn't it? Very easily done. So if I put a put a stone back on, I need to do something for my upper body because the only exercise I do is. Cycling, so I wouldn't say I'm unhealthy, but my bottom half is like Gareth Edwards, and my top half is like Mr. Burns. <laughs> so <laughs> I look, I look an absolute disgrace from the waist up. Just buy a set of fifteen or ten or fifteen k dumbbells. Yeah, I've I've got some dumbbells, so I just I'll get a one twelve k kettlebell and do a kettlebell workout. Oh, sorry, you know? yeah. Next time you're watching a documentary, you just sit there curling. It's just amazing how how different your two parts of your body can look. Based on the exercise you do. I've never done upper body stuff until sort of talking to Mike on this and then started to do little bits, very, very, very small weights. Because you've, you've got lovely broad shoulders and nice chest, Steph. Thank you very much, but I think that's just natural size Ooh. rather than 
Mm. I just I literally have a large skeleton rather than any meat on it. Yeah. But the amount of upper body strength you can now have, I can I can almost do a chin up now. Whereas I could never even dream of, you know, trying one before. So, so it's little stats. Under grip or over grip? Oh, under me. I'm not a lunatic. And, okay. <laughs> not a real one. Yeah, no. no not the hard ones. <laughs> not the hard ones. We're ridiculous. Yeah. I can almost yeah, yeah. do an easy one. And that's fine. <laughs> it's little steps, isn't it? Little yeah, baby it steps. By the end of the year, I will be able to do one in the cheats manner. What a way to finish the show. Yeah. We, could just, bring on, we could just bring on a... Uh, bring on a chin-up chin bar. Chin bar. Brilliant. Just what secure a, it to a door a at a finish. venue. Crescendo. <laughs> the Belfast yeah, gig. Yeah. The, oh, yeah, not on every gig. You'd be, you'd be building up to it throughout the tour. You'd be exhausted. That'd <laughs> be ridiculous. One chin-up. We should have a chin-off. We should, we should have a chin-off at the end, shouldn't we? We can do the most chin-ups. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're going to win. Who's got the longest chin? Be like superstars. <laughs> I'm gonna be like Brian Jacks. I, I, I'm gonna bring an orange with me, just half an orange, and I do chins yeah. in Belfast while I'm asking. Great. It's not that we've run out of material. It's just Mike's gonna do chin ups for 15 minutes. minutes. <laughs> That's 40 minutes just doing press ups and chin ups. <laughs> Everyone feeling, to be honest, slightly short changed. Yeah. This, this has taken a little bit out of us this tour. I'll be honest. Yeah. I know you're fast and loose, lads, but you are taking the personnel. <laughs> but I think you do. Hang on a sec. But I think you've probably had enough now, yeah. No. Was that oh. uh, what, what, what was that? Was a can I have more TV or Xbox? Come say hello if you're going to be that brave. Come on, come on in, say hi. Hello, this is Betsy. Hiya, Betsy. Hiya, Betsy. Betsy's been playing Xbox very quietly in the next room, as all good six-year-old with girls will. Joe. With your brother, yes. With Joe. Yes, with Joe. And now we're wondering whether we can have a bit more television. Hmm. I'm going to say no. I think it'd be fine. Oh, but I love you. No. Mike says yes. Because <laughs> Mike's nice. Ellis is nice as well. He's probably going to say yes. Because he won't have to deal with Yeah, he's the yes as well. Okay? Yeah, yeah. Off you go. I mean, to be honest, the more we get the young generation into watching TV. I think it's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. The longer Which, my it's career. It's the new reading, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> the old, that's the old reading, really. Yeah. And it? it's just. <laughs> as good as. People do get very precious about reading, by the way, don't they? They get very precious. What's that shirt you're wearing? I bought this from the charity shop because it's in distant pod colours. It's just a, it's just a yellow and uh, sorry a yellow and purple t-shirt. Because I was doing that boxing clip the other day, and someone said I thought you'd be in distant pod colours, so I went out and bought purple shorts, uh, yellow and white socks. Yeah. Yellow and white socks. Amazing. Oh wow! And a purple and yellow top, and I got purple and yellow wraps as well. That's very nice. So I'm full on distant pod now. I did a thing with uh, Shane Williams the other day. He's launching a sportswear company. So I had to do some promo stuff with him. And I wore the uh, Puma Farages as a oh, yes. as a little nod to the pod. Which Good got a few nice little mentions as well. Well, I mentioned, uh, you both know this, but so my little girl's rugby presentation on Sunday. Who should turn up on his bicycle to do the presentation? But Jamie Roberts, mm. one of the finest rugby players ever produced by this country. Also, six foot four. Really well built, in great nick, suntanned, really good looking. He had some super cool shades on. My wife and, and her doctor. friend, 
And well, yeah, and a qualified doctor last night. And really good guitarist. He's got an M Phil in medicine from Cambridge, I think. And a really good guitarist and speaks two languages. But, and but he apart- speaks pi- and he plays piano. Bit of French as well because yeah. he lived yeah. out there, so three languages. Yeah, yeah. But but, but apart from that, yeah. but apart from that, I mean, what so, a dick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Kelly and her and her friend Sarah, whose daughter plays as well, but would vis- it was embarrassing really. They were visibly swooning when Jamie yeah. turned up, right? And then my daughter said, "Dad." Mum really fancies him. I said, "Yeah, I can. That, that's not I news. See. By the way. That isn't news. Right? I can see that love." So then I went. I walked over there. I was going to introduce myself, and he said to me, "My Mike, big fan of the podcast." I was like, "Oh my god, Jamie Roberts, this is brilliant." So uh, I'll chat with him. Stay then, the fuck away from my wife. But then we had a selfie. He said, "Going grab a cook's coffee." He said, "Yeah, of course." And then I said, "I said to Kelly earlier, go and ask him for a photograph." She said, "No, you dare mention anything. Don't you dare mention anything to him." So when I got over there with Jamie, I said, by the way, Kelly, he's not that handsome close up. <laughs> and she went bright red. It was hilarious. <laughs> if you listen, Jamie, you are that handsome close up. <laughs> like, you know. Yeah. Oh, he is bloody. What handsome. a lovely bloke. To give up like a Sunday morning to go and present stuff to a bunch of under nines for free. Well, that's why I like living where. We live in Wales because... Oh, well, last year, Ben's one last year was Foxy. So, um, John and Davis Jr., he did Ben's presentation last year. And then and now Jamie Roberts is doing my little girl's presentation. I thought, fair play. How good's that? It's great, It's isn't good it? to introduce people to handsome men early on. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. And on the way back then, Kelly was... People, honestly, it was pathetic. She was... She goes, no, I don't fancy. I don't fancy him. Fancy? And, and my little girl's going, no, you do fancy him. I said, I said yes, you did, Kelly. She said, no, I don't fancy him. You know, be, no. he is he is good looking. I said, well, yeah. I said, so what if you, right? If you find somebody attractive, th- that is fancying somebody, isn't it? Yeah, you do fancy him. The fact that he could take you to the finest restaurants, mm-hmm. um, you know, he, he would protect you against all comers because he's, you know, absolutely man mounted. So you could order, he could, he could order in French, Welsh, or English. Travel the world with him. Yeah, if you're ever ill. He's also a doctor. I mean, he could, he could yeah. look after you and your family. It's um, actually thick of Kelly not to leave you. I <laughs> know. Hey, what's he thinking of? Yeah. yeah. I mean, he is a better deal on every level. He's a catch. He's a, he's, a, he's a catch, he is. Is he married? Why? Put a word in you. I'm just saying, what a lucky, lucky person. Imagine that. But then I look at myself in my prime and I always think how lucky my wife was. So I don't think you've got Many of Jamie's merits. Well, let's go through it. How's your French? I got a great... Pesquia. D'accord. On s'appelle la couille ici. Which means I'm freezing my balls off here. Which we use quite a bit. Um, est-ce que tu aimerais aller en boîte ce soir avec moi? Would you like to go to a club tonight with me? Okay. Non? All, all merci. great no, thank for you. ordering in a, in a restaurant, this. Non, merci. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, merci. Uh, thank you. Imagine saying in a restaurant, I'm freezing my balls off in it. <laughs> I can speak more French than I can speak Welsh. By the way, everybody asks more of a damning indictment on my Welsh levels. Okay. All right. So you're trailing. So, right, right. So here we go. Um, now, we're talking about me and my prime now, right? I'm 49. I'm someone who's like 27, 28. So you played rugby to a decent level, but you never got a Welsh decent, cap. Decent, but I, I never had a Welsh cap, but I, but I was a decent rugby player. Athletically, I was quick. I was I was in physically good shape. I wasn't as tall as Jamie. I wasn't as muscular as Jamie. I was six yeah. foot, fifteen stone, of decent neck, great eyes, proper yeah. 
Paul Newman blue eyes, lovely eyes. Mediterranean skin, I've always had a decent colour on me. Yeah. I had great hair at the time. Clean shaven, of course. I was clean shaven. Always immaculately clean, despite all the bloody shower yeah, stuff. Yeah. You, you two try to shower. The, right? So yeah, let's again, go through it. I, I think that the your claim isn't isn't matched by the evidence. No, but listen, listen. Well, I'll, I'll put the photographs up. So, 29. Uh, intelligent. Check. Great sense of humour. Check. You don't have a, you do, you're not a doctor and you didn't go to Oxbridge. I would, but I didn't want to either. Yeah, you didn't want so, to. So I'm my, I'm my own person. Sad. <laughs> my own person, right? I didn't follow the rules. Yeah, see, Jamie's I'm too not, much of a I'm not a sheep like Jamie that. Roberts. <laughs> I mean... To study medicine at Cambridge. Yeah. What any, a bloody sheep. Any twack can do that. Joseph Mengler <laughs> did that. Good looking, blue eyes, great skin, uh, kind, funny, clever, decent at sport, great voice, good singer. I can act, but anyone can act. Yeah. Can you play piano? <laughs> no. Can you play guitar? I can, I can play Chariots of Fire on one finger. Okay. I can play a bit of guitar. <laughs> I'm not as good as Jamie. I'm not as good as, I'm not as, good as anyone who's not crap. <laughs> Okay. So I mean, I, I was I was a steal. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. If, you, if you're funny and you can sing and you're a bit of the life and soul of the party and you're you're a bit of a sportsman and you know you you got Mediterranean, Mediterranean good looks and blue I was eyes. never the life and soul of the party. I was more of the the the, the conscience, of the, <laughs> the lymph system, okay. <laughs> the nervous system, the central the nervous system of the party. So yeah, I was I wasn't Jamie Roberts esque. But I certainly was in that, in sort of Jamie Roberts ballpark. You know, if if you, if we were on uh, that naked attraction, and it was me, Jamie Roberts, Simon Jones, oh, who else could go in there? Who else is going to go in the glass box? As it was as it was moving up, so they look at my bottom half first of all. Yeah, yeah. You've all seen the show. You're all aware of the show. If it was Kelly doing the picking before I knew Kelly, she'd look at. I imagine Simon Jones's legs. They're quite nice. They're quite slender. Mm-hmm. Quite tanned. Look at Jamie's. Always. Lovely, lovely big thighs on him. She would look at mine and think, oh, yeah, he's got nice thighs as well. He's part of the conversation. Turn round. I have got a great bum, right? It's like Alice's bum. i got a lovely bum. I imagine Jamie's got a decent bum. We know Simon Jones has got a nice bum. Willie's. I haven't seen Simon's Willie. No reason to think that it's anything other, you know. Other than exemplary. <laughs> yeah. I imagine that Jamie's is perfectly adequate as well. i got a nice Willie. <laughs> torso. Move <laughs> the torso. I got a bit of a hairy chest. Women like that. I was in good nick at the time. Good nice shoulders. Jamie, lovely shoulders. Mm. Lovely chest. Abs. Uh, Simon Jones, more of a, obviously a cricketer's physique. So, you know, slightly sl- narrower shoulders, but very toned and good good shape on him. Nice skin. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we go up to the, you know, the, the face. I'm holding my own there. Maybe not with Simon, but I'm certainly holding my own with Jamie, face, facially, I think, at the time. Um... And then they ask us what your voice is like. Well, I got a lovely voice. Jamie's got a nice voice. Simon Jones has got a, d- a decent voice. So yeah, it just comes down to then just choice. What, what she's after, I suppose, isn't it? What she's after. And then she walks out with her clothes off. Cause that's what happens on the show. Yeah, that be, be between me and I, the other person. I imagine. It'd be, so who's gone from this equation then? Who's? I think Simon's gone because Kelly likes a rugby look. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, okay. Simon. So there's, there's me and Jamie left, and we're and they, you've always got to give each other a compliment. Then she, she and so the woman on there would say. All right, what's one nice thing about Jamie? Mm. I see he's got a lovely strong jawline. He's a really lovely looking masculine, looking love shoulders. Yeah. And then she'd she say to Jamie, one nice thing about Mike. <laughs> and he said, oh God, just one, hang on. Um, <laughs> he's got lovely blue eyes. 
and a big dick. So, <laughs> so that's, two, that's two things. And she said, okay, I was only joking. He's got lovely blue eyes. And then it's a toss-up then. I think we'll see me and Jamie. For Kelly. But I, I imagine it's a cup that, final then, isn't it? it could go oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But let's be way. honest. And then he'd probably go into some French and he'd drop the fact in that he was a doctor and I was a sort of failed PE teacher and she'd go for Jamie, I'd imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I was playing for Barry Thurs and he was in the British Lions. <laughs> but Kelly's some Swansea, so maybe she like Simon's Llanelli accent. Oh, that's true. That's true. I mean, don't get me wrong. She's lucked out whatever happens there. She's done well for herself. Oh, this yeah, is the yeah, point yeah. I'm making. She's done well for herself. Either of those three options, me, Jamie, or Simon. Any one of those three, she'll be happy. She's got a dream boat, whichever way she plays Imagine if, if you were on it, the screen raised up to your waist and mm. the girl in question... Like to your legs and your bum and your penis. Yeah. <laughs> and then screen yeah. raised up to the neck and the girl yeah. in question liked your chest and your shoulders and your back and yeah. your arms. Great. It's all very plausible so far. Yeah, Go yeah. On. Then screen raises so she gets a look at your face. She Brilliant. Love, thanks. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. And the face. She 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 enjoys that as well. She likes that. That's it's yeah. all going according to plan. Yeah, yeah. And then when you speak, she's so put off by your voice. Yeah. She's like, no, hiya! Can hiya. I just say, failed P teacher, I am. Um, I do play piano and guitar, and I have played rugby at the highest level. Do you like shit guitar? So, uh, ultimately, it's, it's up to you. And what, what do you think? <laughs> Pew. Yeah, I know. I do a bit of podcasting now. Jamie's there. It's fluent French. I play seventies music on Radio <laughs> Wheels as well. Do you like armor? <laughs> what do you want, yeah. Chief, from this now? Because you don't know me yet. I have got terrible anger problems. I am very, very prone to temper tantrums. <laughs> 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 no, but the thing is, right, people are always smart asses because Kelly's aged very well, right? She's 42 years of age. She won't be saying. She looks yeah. great. She doesn't look anywhere near mm. her age. She doesn't look markedly different from when I met her when she was 23, mm. right? Yeah. People say, oh, you're punching, you're punching, you're punching. Oh, you're punching, honey. Oh, you're punching, mate. You're pu-. Fuck <laughs> off. Yeah, maybe now, but not when I met her. <laughs> if anything, it was a fucking draw. <laughs> Score draw. It was a split decision in the late 90s. Photo finish. Yeah. No, 2002 when I met her. I mean, it was close then. We were equally well matched. Now, yeah, fair enough. I do look, I have looked like I've done well for myself. Well, that's just looks, isn't it? I've still got a great personality. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't back me, no one else is going to back me. Who's going to back me? I'll back you. Oh, I'll back you, yeah. I mean, not well, not necessarily against Jamie and Simon. I, I'm probably... No, oh, no, I've no, already no, given you're, him you're best. You're deluded. You're mad. Yeah, that's, that's no. ludicrous. I've, You've lost it. I've already said... I'm a supportive friend, not a liar. I've already given yeah. Jamie the bloody... Naked attraction. Yeah, that's fine. I Not mean, si- mine. Si- Simon played cricket at the very highest level. Absolutely. Yes, but Kelly doesn't like a cricket build. I'm saying he's a good-looking boy. You know, I'd like to dr- ride through the Dordogne on a tandem with him. We know this. Yeah. Have you, ever, have you ever seen the pictures of him in GQ? Yes. Oh, okay, just saying. Have you seen the ones I had done this week for my fucking t- solo t- tour next Are you year? stripped to the waist? <laughs> with a bunch of grips of your groin. <laughs> <laughs> Holding a bat between your legs. <laughs> Uh, is this a comedy show? <laughs> Ma- Madman's Vanity Project. I think we should do some of these topless. Why is Mike wanking off under a flyover? That's what comedy poster he's doing. It's a tour poster. It's a tour. Co- <laughs> Restraining order. 
<laughs> this is a paid advert from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Now, we all carry around lots of different sort of stress moments, whether it's like big or small. It could be as huge as how am I going to pay the mortgage this month? Or, you know, I'm I'm ill, but I don't really want to talk to anybody about that because I don't want to make them feel stressed about it as well. Or, you know, it could be just as, something as small as how am I going to get to school pickup in time? I've got a meeting. How do I change that? How do I move that? I forgot to cancel that. And lots of the time we keep it bottled up. And whether it's big or small, it can really start to affect us negatively. And therapy is kind of a safe space to get those things off your chest so whether it's like coming up with plans to to organize your life a little bit better or whether it's just having someone to talk to about those things you don't want to stress out your mates or your family with if you're thinking of giving therapy a try better help is a great option it's convenient accessible affordable and entirely online you will be matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and you can switch therapists at any time our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash distant. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash distant. Before we start uh, our first round of clips, I'm just going to use this opportunity to plug my mate, uh, Rodri Viney, who Mike knows. Oh, nice boy. I don't think, I don't think you've met nope. him, Steph, have you? Well, he's a musician. He's a tremendously talented bloke who I lived with for a few years. He was my last flatmate before I moved in with Izzy, actually. Okay. But um, he's in a, a couple of bands, right and left hand, who are a sort of post-rock group. I think that's the best way of describing them. They are fantastic live. There's only two of them, him and Bernie, uh, who's a drummer, and they make an amazing noise, sort of really heavy riffs, but lots of tempo changes and weird time signatures. They're brilliant. But it's not that. He also... Um, he's a very good uh, folk guitarist and he's written and he performs folk music uh, as a solo act under the name of Ratatosk and he's got a new album out which is called Uncanny Y-N it's in Welsh uh, new word C-A-N-U and you can get it on Bandcamp and uh, he describes it as um, sad folk music which really uh, which I think is quite a good uh, description but because but because Rodri is um, a very very an assuming, self-effacing person. He said, musically, it's an attempt to do something more stripped down than the previous album to make success and to release an album that was under 40 minutes, which was a total success. <laughs> I like the way he's, he's... He's unwilling to take the, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the Simon Cowell sort of approach to marketing. He's quite bashful about it. Now then, if you... You can obviously try before you buy on Bandcamp. Yeah. So give it a listen. If you like it... Because obviously he doesn't have the weight of a big record label behind him. Do him a favour and bung him a few quid. Yeah. If you like it, but you're skint, which I'm sure lots of our listeners are in that position, then by all means listen to it. Maybe catch a live show if you can. Um, or maybe when you've got some more money by the record. Or just tell someone about it who might be able to buy it. So that's the that's the rule. Yeah. It's fine to stream Phil Collins' music uh, illegally. Oh, okay. Often a thing. Because well, meant, uh, he's, he's a multi-millionaire, mm. but for people well, like Rodri, who are doing it, you know, he's recording at home, uh, yeah, be a decent person and bung him a few quid. Um, 
he he was the first person I met. This is relevant to the doc, doc choice, actually. He was the first Welsh person I met who was obsessed with cycling. He loves his sport. So I remember living with him during the probably 2009 Tour de France. He had a massive map of France on the living room wall. And he absolutely loves his sport. I, I'd seen him live and was a fan of his before I met him. Because the Super Free Animals discovered him when he was well, about one of those 18. weird stalkers that becomes a friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember they, like. the, fur, the furries <laughs> asked him to support them at the CIA at the, what is now the Motorpoint Arena when he was about 18. Just him and his acoustic guitar in front of like 4,000 people. Oh. And then I got to know him and he's a lovely bloke. So yeah, Uncanny by Ratatosk. So give that a spin Brilliant. if you are that way inclined. I'll ask Wally. I'm going to get on that because I don't know. Nice. He's not a friend of mine. But I will get on bank account. No, and well, look at it. He's, he was also the first Welsh person I knew who was into NFL. And then when I yep. met Mike, I introduced the two of them. Ah. And they bonded over... We did. What was that video you used to watch? Crunch time. Crunch time. <laughs> so masculine. <laughs> Me and Rodri are big crunch time fans. <laughs> he was a man of few words. But when he spoke, everybody listened. Yeah, yeah. Crunch Come on. time. Crunch time. Was it? like the National hits, Football League? The meek shall never inherit this turf. <laughs> Come on! We were big John Fassender fans. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> yeah, it felt. I felt nice to. Uh, I got to download that. Oh. The only two people I knew who were NFL fans. When I was, I wrote a, a radio, comedy show for Radio Wales, and we needed someone to do a um, a Eurovision Bonnie Tyler pastiche. And I called Rodri and I said, can you do a sort of Bonnie Tyler Eurovision pastiche for me? And he said, yeah, yeah. And he called me back within about half an hour and said, yeah, done it. <laughs> you know, when someone's so good at stuff, yeah. it just becomes very, very easily to them. I do know. And it took him, yeah, it probably took him under an hour. Incredible. But yeah. Well, do you know what, speaking quickly about Eurovision, very quickly, because obviously this is way off sport. The Eurovision film with Will Ferrell, as well as being a very funny film, I thought, all of the songs written for that film would win Eurovision for real. Well, as long as they're not British entries, because they bloody hate us over there, don't they? So it's all political voting nowadays. It's not actually about how good the song is. It's because all, all Eastern European countries are in cahoots. All the old so, Eastern Bloc countries all, all vote for each other, don't they? Which I think is disgraceful and goes against, goes against the bloody... Spirit of the thing in the first place is what I always say. All the Mediterranean races all vote together as well. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the f- I got the first inkling. I realised that they were they hated the British was when Love City grooved in them in 1994. Which I thought was such a strong, strong entry for us. But then all the bloody Soviet, all the ex-Soviet states fought them with each other, and the Irish are bloody. They no help, are they. They don't even sing their own bloody language, mate. All the all the uh, Eastern Europeans these days, anyway. Yeah. And, it, and the Aussies, I think it should uh, be made to sing in your own language, and that's the bottom line. Absolutely, bloody exactly is what I've always said. Absolute disgrace. And that includes Johnny Logan. He should be singing in the Irish language. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty off topic. That's good. Unfortunately, it's something I feel very, very <laughs> strongly about, Steph. It's passion. You can't argue with passion. <laughs> yeah. It is what sports are about. It is just the way I feel, Steph, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, you have touched a nerve. <laughs> because I think in Britain, if you look at our... History of popular music, certainly post Elvis. I think we, I think we are, you know, we, we are punching above our weight. Well, we can hold our heads up high. Small island of sixty-seven million people. You're nothing against Iceland, Israel. Israel. 
Eurovision Song Contest, Israel be fucked. Australia. Now you've spoiled it, I think. You've <laughs> it. And I will say that. I will say that to anyone's face. I think Boca Juniors playing in the Euros. <laughs> the European Champions What League. a That's fantastic cool. comparison, Mike. <laughs> Great analogy, that. Absolutely brilliant analogy. Mike's right, you know. It is like Pocket Juniors playing in the European Champions League. Mike's right, he is. He is, mind. No different. First round of glyphs. <laughs> Ellis, I want you to go first because this is the worst thing about sports fans. If being on social media for the last 10 to 15 years hasn't already destroyed your uh, faith in humanity. This clip certainly will. (laughs) So, uh, it's only a short clip. This is about a minute long and it's Steph Curry who plays as a point guard for the Golden State Warriors. Uh, In about 2016, about five years ago, I think, uh, from all I can tell from the YouTube clip, he's taken off his shoes, he's signed them, and he's given them to a a little kid in the crowd. It's the kind of thing you saw during the Euros, Mason Mount giving his shirt to um, that young girl who ended up being on telly a lot. Um, I've seen the clip as well of Jack Grealish giving his boots to a young boy. It's the kind of thing... That happens in sport fairly often, and you know that that kid—that's the best moment ever. You know, that's that's the oh, best yeah. moment of their lives. Yeah. You know, it do, it just doesn't get any better than that. A big star like Steph Curry giving you his signed basketball shoes. <laughs> this fucking adult, a grown man, thinks, "Oh, yep, yeah, I can overpower him." Absolutely, <laughs> he looks weak because he's about nine. <laughs> so here we go, and he he. he tries to steal the uh, the shoes off the little kid and then there's an altercation in the crowd and then the kid gets the shoes back. Steph Curry's walked off by this point. How shameless is that bloke? You've got to be a tool, haven't you? It's pathetic. It is yeah. pathetic. What an anecdote. Hey, look at these. Wow, what are they? They're Steph Curry's signed uh, basketball shoes because I was at the game last week. How do you get them? Oh, I stole them off a kid that he gave them to, actually. Yeah, uh, I just trying. overpowered him. The kid was only about nine. And obviously, I'm well, the kid's there with his Steph Curry vest on yeah. with the name on the back and obviously a huge fan. You see it in baseball. and Obviously, in all of, most American sports, not basketball, but you, if a ball goes into the crowd, you keep the ball, right? Baseball, football, right? And there is a scramble for a ball if, it's, if they hit a ball into the stands. Sometimes kids get sort of pushed out of the way, but but it's not it's not premeditated. There's someone looking at the ball and they're trying to catch the ball. Yeah. But once they've given something to someone, like a little kid, what grown adult then tries to take it off them? It's also theft, isn't it? I think... And you're not going to get away with it, are you? But when you're going to catch a baseball that's been hit into the crowd... Because you you know if you're going to catch a baseball travelling at that velocity, you're going to have your eye on the ball. Yes. And if you barge into a little kid on the way, it doesn't look great on telly, but I can understand why that happens or how yeah. that happens. Yes. And it's a completely different kettle of fish ethically to watching a, base, a basketball star sign his shoes, give them to a big little kid who's a big fan of his in the crowd, and then going, well, I think I'll have them. <laughs> it's absolutely unbelievable. Because they'd be worth an awful lot of money. Oh, yes. Money, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can't just nick them. No, but theft is theft, isn't it? It doesn't even try to nick one, he nicks them both. I know, yeah. 
I'm surprised you gave both to the kid, to be honest. I thought I'd give like one to one kid and one to another kid. Yeah, so having thought of it that way, I actually think Steph Curry's at fault here. Yeah. No, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, should have. What an idiot. Should have given one yeah. to the older guy already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like just because obviously then, then the adult is overpowered and there's a confrontation and he's forced to give the shoes to the kid who was their, you know, rightful recipient, the intended recipient. As he leaves the ground, does he feel shame? Does he feel embarrassed? I don't think so. Does he, he probably just feels annoyed that he hasn't got shoes. You know that's to gonna sell. Be all, that's, that's gonna be all over social media as well. Yeah. Everyone's gonna see yeah, that. Yeah. Everyone's got their phones out these days. There's T V cameras there as well. You gotta to go to work on Monday and you're the bloke who try to steal something off a nine year old kid. Yeah, like you're you know, you've got to go to work on Monday and you're asked. You're known guy. as Dave the Wanker for the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, did you go to the Warriors game on the weekend? Yeah. No. 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 I thought so. yeah. Absolutely not. I'm sure I saw you. Sure, sure, you're on the coverage at the end. No, no, no. no that wearing that jacket. It's the same jacket and everything. No, that wouldn't have been me. I was uh, in, oh, in the house I was busy not robbing a nine-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> what plausible reason could there be for it? I mean, this is the thing. Because the rise of eBay, like back in the day, I can understand why a lot of players are funny about it now. You would sign things. You'd sign someone's autograph book because that was a thing that people collected. Yeah. You know, and you'd show it to your friends and you'd try and get all the, your favourite players in the book and all that sort of, you know, or they might sign your shirt that you're wearing. Yeah. But when you turn up now at a, you know, when you're waiting for the players exit at Anfield and you've got 10 Liverpool shirts and a Sharpie and, you know, handing to people, it's because you're going to want to sell, you want to sell them. So I can understand then people thinking, oh, I'm not doing that for you, mate, fuck off. That's different, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And that, but that's what it's become. It's become a revenue for a lot of people. Yeah. Like this blog, obviously, he wasn't he wasn't going to keep the Steph Curry shoes. They were going to go straight on eBay. Maybe he just so, needed a new pair of shoes. Well, that might be it. He might not. Well, you can't see from the clip he's wearing shoes. No, that's true. I, <laughs> yeah. I don't wearing size 13s. But size in terms of signing things for, like, recognised autograph hunters, autograph collectors. Yeah. So when I've supported famous comedians, I've seen them do that. And they don't want you to personalise the autograph at all. Because, yeah, I remember um, Izzy getting asked to sign something by uh, an autograph collector outside the Colchester Art Centre. And he wasn't coming to the show. So, so Izzy said, uh, oh, so what's your name? Don't write my name. What is your name? John. But please don't write that. Just Izzy Sutter, your normal autograph, please. Oh, wow. Sad you come to the show? No. <laughs> don't even like you. Don't even like if you. If you're coming to our live shows, I will sign anything. That's fine. Wow. But don't hang around outside, not having bought a ticket. Yeah. Expecting to sign anything at all. <laughs> but I don't really get... I mean, I've got to sign stuff, and it's nice to have it. It is. But I'm not slavish about it. I've never, I've never really understood... I've only I've mentioned, I've only done it once. I waited in line... No, twice. I waited in line for Priscilla Presley, but that was more about because I wanted to meet Priscilla. And then that didn't happen, and I was really devastated. And then I waited for a long time for my favourite artist, a comic book artist, to sign my... You know, and then he fucked me off right at the last eleventh hour. <laughs> Although, but I've had stuff signed, like, but but I've always been there. Like I went, went to see Eric Sykes, and then Eric Sykes signed my book. I went to see Ronnie Corbett. Ronnie Corbett signed my book. I wouldn't sort of buy the book, then hang around outside, yeah, not go to see Ronnie Corbett, and then expect him to sign my yes. book. That's just yeah, weird. absolutely. The camera phone has completely destroyed autograph hunting as a thing. I used to have loads of autographs as a kid. That and actual memorabilia has as well, isn't it? Because yeah. if you go back, I was listening to Sam Warburton interviewing Gareth Edwards the other day, and Sam was like, what, what have you done with your Lions shirts? And Gareth was like, shirts? He was like, we had two for the tour. 
Yeah, yeah. Now that you've got two shirts, or footballers have got maybe four, they might yeah, have four per short game, sleeve, yeah. short sleeve, first half, second half, and long sleeve, first half, second half. That's much more valuable in inverted commas than a autograph, isn't it? Players want to give them away. Yeah. Well, because otherwise you've got four shirts after every game. Yeah. Chris Gunter would have 400 Wales shirts. <laughs> you think you'd give Ellis one, wouldn't you? If you're listening, Guns, I mean, give Ellis a shirt. Come you? on. <laughs> yeah, just a, just a friendly. One of yeah. the bad friendlies. The Australia, Northern yeah. Ireland. I'd love like a Dick Butkus on a Rain Nitschke shirt, but one. Is it. I wonder if it was the same in the NFL, whether in the old, in, in the old days you had one jersey, maybe. Look For the season. Picture from the 60s, and some of those shirts are really patched up, so they must have just had the one yeah. I would imagine they cost a fortune in the oh, second-hand yeah, market, like eBay and stuff, or Craigslist. Because they're, they're mad for memorabilia over there as well. Yeah. I mean, they make, they make us look like rank amateurs. You've got, you got to, like... I've, I've been to golf days. I've seen blokes bidding thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on footballs and jerseys and, and hockey pucks and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Oh, they love it. They absolutely love it, yeah. So if Aaron Rodgers took off his mm. cleats after a game, signed them, and there's a nine-year-old oh. in front of you who he gave them to, oh. would you punch that nine-year-old out of no. the way? No. Of course not. Well, I'll, give, I'll, give him, I'll give him $20 in his, in his skyrocket. $20 of cold, <laughs> of cold, hard cash for him. It's always about the cash. That's the only language they understand. No, you, well, that's the case in point. No, I'm, I would absolutely love to have those. Not enough for me to upset a little kid or yeah, be a complete yeah. twat. That's what, that's what I can't get my head around. Obviously, you want those shoes, but how much do you want them? Because what, what this bloke is doing is, 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 is exhibiting psychopathic behaviour. Yes. Yeah, I yeah, want absolutely. those, so I'm going to have them. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm stronger than that person. <laughs> yeah. And so With no I, thought of the consequence. And that is proper psychopathic. What are you doing? You're really upsetting a little kid. You're, you're scaring a little kid. Yeah, but I want the shoes, though. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't matter. I would be very, very embarrassed if one of my kids did that. Can you imagine how ashamed you'd be as a parent? Imagine being his dad, that bloke's dad. Come on for Sunday dinner, just clip him on the ear since you walked in the door at your kids. Unless they're 37 years of age and they're nicking <laughs> shit. Yeah, that, that's okay to clip him around the ear. Yeah. In which case, give him a clip, because you should have done it earlier. It's just, yeah, where, where, where's the kid's dad? Imagine somebody did that to Steph or Joe in front of you. There yeah. you have it. Some dweeb, you're at the rugby and like, Louis Rissamek gives you takes his shirt off, signs it for your son. Yeah. And then the bloke two rows behind comes and nicks a shirt out of his end. No, no, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, no, I shouldn't have thought so. <laughs> yeah, which, which luckily, I mean, you know, weirdly, because L sent the clip and I, he linked to the wrong thing for me. Yeah. Weirdly, in both the clips, in this one, the crowd do the right thing and get the shoes back off the bloke and give them back to the kid. And in the other one, there was a bloke kicking off of the tennis, basically picking on a... Uh, Ends up getting into a fist fight with this old fella, and, and knocks the old fella over, and the crowd jump on him Good. before security get there. Yeah, just do the right thing, you know. So you'd like to think that, that would happen. So my clip for this round is something that I kind of uh, picked up reading some stuff on the Athletic the other day um, about the MLB All Star Game, mm. and they started raging about this two way player, which. I didn't really know a lot about it. I knew the phrase from NFL. So yeah. guys who play, you know. Deion Sanders. And yeah, ex- yeah, that's basically where I knew it from, was from Sanders' career. Yeah. So playing on defense as well as offense. But in baseball terms, I was like, okay, what does that mean? Now, this guy, 
actually pitches and is a proper hitter as well. Unless you're about 100 years old, you have never seen this before. Baseball is witnessing something insane. I don't want to say freak, but he's close to it. Imagine if Tom Brady led the league in touchdowns thrown and sacks. That is how crazy it would be if one of the best hitters in the league and one of the best pitchers in the league were the same person. But that's exactly what's going on. Shohei Otani, the first two-way star in a hundred years, goes against everything we thought we knew about baseball, and yet he is making it look easy. So quick question, what's a two-way player and why isn't everyone doing it? It's showtime. Otani is great clip, pal. A phenomenon. It's and just to, just to add context, so we're recording. What is it? It's twentieth of July today. Mm. So overnight in the states, he hit a home run. Yesterday, he had six innings of no hits. Did he really? Yeah, so in the last two games, he sort of has demonstrated that he has both these skill sets. Well, they mentioned in the video that there are players, every season you'll see players who, pitchers who will have a decent innings, very much more rarely than that, a batter will come in and, and pitch a couple of pitches at the end of a game sometimes yeah. and do okay. Yeah. But he's he's doing it at the elite level. He's an elite level pitcher, elite level hitter. Which hasn't been done for a hundred years. Well, it's, it's a, it says it all that they're comparing him in this video, right, rightfully, to Babe Ruth. But then, even then, when Babe Ruth went to the and Yankees, young Babe Ruth before he, before, because at the Yankees he was just a hitter, he didn't pitch. But that's remarkable, and to to have sort of worked out career paths so that he can do that as well. I think you know the video sort of says that there are a lot of college level players who do both. And then you just basically, you know, whoever scouts you goes, no, no, you're you're a batter, mate. What I yeah, what I bat. found found amazing about this clip is that all modern sport, yeah, you know, everyone specialises these days. He could change the sport because, as the video points out, for the price of one player, a one yeah. uh, set of wages and one salary, you've got an elite hitter and an elite pitcher. So it it can it completely changes the dynamic of your squad if you've got a couple of these. It radically changes your wage bill. It completely changes the way you play the game. But you are going against the grain of a hundred years of specialism. And also, he looks when you see like modern golfers, right? Yes, he looks like a modern baseball player. He does, doesn't he? He's really he's athletic looking. He's tall. He's but he's, he's strong with it. But he's slender. And you think you're a world away from what a lot of baseball players that I used to watch in Toronto thirty years ago looked like. I didn't realise it. I found it fascinating. I, I love. I watch a lot of baseball while I did in, in Canada. I watch baseball here all the time. I, I'm a bit out of it for the last four, four or five years. I knew obviously it was, a, it was a big sport in Japan. I didn't realise it was that big. Yeah, oh, it's massive. Yeah. I mean, it is one of their major sports, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Well, there was a whole sort of the rivalry between the Nippon League and MLB. Well, if you're competing with the with the major league for talent, well, it's only twenty years ago. I think it was Nomo was the first. I was sort of looking up sort of Japanese players. Yeah. I think it was Nomo was the first one who pitched in the major leagues. But they, they used to have... It used to be part of your contract that you couldn't sort of switch between the two. Mm. And then people found loopholes in there where they could go between seasons. And what, I mean, his his agent, that was so clever. I mean, the nuts and bolts of it is he's sort of 18 years of age when he signs with the nipple. They, he wants to go to the major league, but they, they need him to specialise. The way the Nippon League kept him there was to say, well, you can play, you can bat and pitch. He said, well, I'll have a bit of that. So he just four years of that. So now he's coming in at, after 
four years of that, you know, he's, he's proved himself at that level. And what he also had there that he wouldn't have got in the major leagues with, with the farm system, they said, like, for the first season, he did struggle doing both. Well, you'd have either been told then immediately to concentrate on one, or you'd be down in AAA, AA before you knew what was going on, right? But because the, their league is different, they persevere with him and they give him the chance to improve it and, and you know, to achieve his potential, which he does. So then he has two or three years at playing at the high level of both. And then he can go to the major leagues and say, yeah, but I, I, want, to, I want to do both. Also, if he'd gone too early, they'd have said, see, told you, you need to choose. Because yeah. you can't do both. Because yeah, you, need, you, you need yeah. to specialise in one and then you'll be in the, an elite level at whatever one you choose. But you can't do both because well, there's not enough hours in the day. Well, it also made you realise, though, when it... This way, there's loads of so, so much in a little clip. This is Steph. Um, they sort of talk about Babe Ruth, and it's been a hundred years since someone's done it. And they said, and then they throw a very big caveat in there, with the exception of the Negro Leagues. Yes, you've exactly. got to think for yeah. years and years and years in baseball, black people couldn't play. I've no doubt that if you if you were if you were a, a bitch if you were a two way player in the in the Negro League in 1948. Yes, you could have done that for a major league baseball team. Oh, absolutely! Easy. But they've only just started including those um, stats in the sort of major league stats now. Crazy, isn't it? It's like in the last couple of years that they've looked at the Negro leagues and gone, "Well, no." But there was the one fellow there, like Satchel the, Page from the Negro League. They said, apart from catcher, he played at every position, and he had a really good hitting average. So he pitched, he played all the infield, he played all the outfield. That's nuts, isn't it? Yeah, they show all the positions where he played throughout. Weirdly, because of money, like we were saying, well, like Al say. said then, it's, it's, you're saving a roster spot. Then it was just economics. Yeah, it was. It was like, no, we need someone to do that and we can't afford someone else. You're doing it, off you go. Uh, Otani did that the other day where he'd, <laughs> he'd pitched for six innings, was obviously knackered, yeah. and then went to field in right field. That's not easy on your arm either. No, that's that exactly... Yeah. Until you follow baseball, so it's so an awfully long season, a lot of games, a lot of travelling. If you're the, our best pitcher, why don't you pitch every game? Because you're throwing the ball at 100 miles an hour, and it's really hard. It's, it's, it's unusual to pitch nine innings, never mind. I, don't, I, I wouldn't want to know when the last person pitched back-to-back games, consecutive days. But it must ruin you. And you see them, they got the ice pack on straight away when they finish. Can they still play 120, how many games in a season? Somebody, yeah, it's about 120, I think, when we looked it up, yeah. But also, because you've got the, the weird, the anachronism in the, in the in Major League Baseball. So is it, so the American League, you have the designated hitter, don't you? So in the National League, your pitcher has to bat. Yes. Yeah. But in the American Leagues, your pitcher just pitches. And you bring in some of the, you bring a designated hitter in just to bat. Talk about a, a kid who's got everything, though, as well. You know, good-looking young bloke in good shape who can literally do it all. I imagine his salary is fairly impressive. Well, his, his endorsements. Um, oh. I was looking this up. Well, I bet just his Japanese market. Imagine, and the Japanese Americans. Well, that's the thing. You've got two markets, haven't you? There's a yeah. lot of Huge. Japanese athletes now. So you think of Naomi Osaka yeah. in tennis. You got uh, Inoue, the boxer. Who's the guy who won the Masters? Was it Matt? Matsuyama. Oh. So you've got a whole generation of Japanese athletes. There's a few players in the NBA now as well. There was Kendo was Nagasaki of, in wrestling back in the day, wasn't there? Absolutely, back in the back in the old days. <laughs> but you've got a whole generation of young, marketable yeah. Japanese athletes. Well, that's a huge market you didn't have before. But isn't it amazing that he could change a sport like Dick Fosbury changed the sport, or that ski jumper in the late eighties who 
started ski jumping. He was his skis were in a different position, and he started destroying, smash. Yeah, the V, and he was smashing records. Yeah, well, yeah, we well, used to change it now, wouldn't he? Like, he's, he's already, but fair play, like they said, fair play to the general manager and the owner for thinking, okay, well, let's let's give it a go because I mean, famously, not a very risk averse league. Yes, yeah, baseball. But if that, but if it's also all about the dollar being the MLB, so if that. If that does work, then expect that to be the next big thing. Look at college players who can do both. It's such a game. You use fine margins all the time, but baseball, my God, you look at the, you look at the batting averages. They're so close. It's so close between being nothing and being in a major league. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. Literally, it's literally a couple of hits difference at bat. It's really fine margins. So it takes bollocks for him as well to do that. Didn't someone pitch? I was going to pick it. Some pitch and no hits the other day. That wasn't him, obviously. Did they? Yeah, it was the first one for a long time, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to get back into watching baseball. I used to watch it when it was live. When I lived over there, I watched it all the time. It's just a great day. I suppose, you know, if you're an insomniac of any kind, or if you have really young kids and you're up late, <laughs> yeah, it is. Oh, it's when a Ben was a good sport to get into. Yeah, when Ben was being having like feeds all through the night, and Kelly used to watch Sex and the City when it was her turn, and I used to watch the baseball. Loved it. Yeah, it was baseball or serial killer docs for me. When I was living it's in Toronto, are oh, you one of those weird? Oh, the ashes yeah. when uh, Betty was little. I, I lived near to. Um, Sky Dome when I was over there. So it's just a great... I mean, I was thinking about the... When you have a nice day in the... Like my boy's playing cricket today. It's just nice to go to the cricket, sit in the sunshine for a few hours. A lot of my friends don't like baseball. They don't get it. And mm. it's too, it, I don't think it's a brilliant TV sport. I like it because I know what's going on. But if you're trying to get into the sport, it's, it's not easy to get into. But when you're at the stadium, you can see it all going on. Yes. When you're above it, I love it. And it's just it's three hours. It's in the sunshine. They're bringing your beers to your seat. They do. They do the other stuff right. There's not too much of it. There's not like some. They'll do the music and stuff in between the innings and. What? Did they actually play that? Yeah, that's hilarious. That's great. I just know that from The Simpsons. They used to have one on the um, all the different ones in the sky. Dome. the one was like if it went up in the air, or there was if it went towards the the restaurant, the sky dome restaurant. They had this really loud smashing glass effect. <laughs> yeah, it was great. And they used to have the, um, so after the, is it, that, is it after the sixth innings? When do they come and brush the bases, Steph, and put yeah. the lines back yeah. on? So, yes, yeah, so they run out and they, they everyone's they're sort of brushing the, the bases and they're, they're redoing the lines and all that sort of stuff. But then when they got into the pennant game, the, the year that they won the World Series, I think it was. Were you in Canada when they won the World Series? It was my last day in Toronto when they went to the Oh, Wow. It was absolutely... They, and they won in Game 6. They beat Atlanta away. And I was watching it on a bar in Young Street, my local. If it had gone to Game 7, I'd have been on the plane. So they won the Series 4-2. They were, the last game was in Atlanta. And Toronto went absolutely what a drink up. nuts. I went to bed at 4 o'clock and it was still deafening. And they're really like conservative with a small C in Toronto. You can't have an open beer can on the street. You can't have an open bottle. You can't do this. You can't do that. You know, it was quite nice. But, you know, quite... Uh, genteel or certainly was in 94 whatever it was 92 but yeah police on the horses were like drinking a beer and (laughs) giving the police cans and it was always always, it was a hell of a party the thing with sport it doesn't matter but it does matter because it matters to so many people well that was the first Canadian team ever to win the major ever to win a World Series but if that had happened and no one had known about it and it was just those teams playing in a park with no spectators. Then the outcome yeah. doesn't matter. But because it can make a city go absolutely crazy for a few days and it's watched by millions the world over, then it clearly does. Well, my friend Craig, the one who passed away, who's a mm. big hockey fan, he was saying that day, well, when the Blue Jays won the World Series, 
he said, this is crazy. It was nuts. It was, it was like a Grand Slam rugby day, but it just kept going and kept going and kept going. If the Maple Leafs ever win a Stanley Cup again, he said, this will this will be nothing. He said, this will be nothing compared to that. Wow. Because every time the Leafs got the playoffs, all the buses, the digital sort of readouts on the front of the buses, you know, saying, you know, whatever, North York or bloody Scarborough, whatever's on the front of the buses, right? All just said, go Leafs, go. Go Leafs, yeah. go. Oh, go wow. Leafs, go. All the buses. I thought, my God, they haven't won a Stanley Cup for years and years and years. Yeah, but if they ever win a Stanley Cup again, we're such a, it's such a hockey mad country and such a hockey mad town that it would be off the scale. I'd love, I would, my God, if they ever get into a Stanley Cup finals, I will have to go to Toronto just to be in the city if it happens. But I was going to say about the, um, when they got to the pennant game, the, um, the Blue Jays, I, I'm, I, I'm not sure I remember this correctly. I'm sure I am. That out of the bullpen came this stretch limousine and all the people who, who sort of brushed the bases and stuff came on the back of a stretch limousine in tuxes <laughs> and they're all brushing it and doing the stuff and painting the lines. And then, then they go back in the limousine and fuck off again. It was brilliant. So, Mike, your clip for this round, mate. Right, so my clip for this round, um, again, is from the BBC Archive Facebook page, which is, I can't recommend it highly enough as a follow, right? So this is from 1971, when, believe it or not, Birmingham, we're trying to be uh, the next Monaco. If the enthusiasts have their way, this could become one of the most exciting spots in Europe for motor racing, because this roundabout is at the end of a straight. Cars will approach it at something like 120 miles an hour, go right round it and come back down the other side of the dual carriageway to drive towards the bullring. One of the people most enthusiastic about motor racing in the city centre is Birmingham's Lord Mayor. To get this turned into a racing circuit requires an act of parliament to remove the 30 mile an hour speed restrictions. What chances do you think you've got of getting this through? Well, I think we've got a good chance because um, this has got the support of all parties in the Birmingham area. I've no doubt we've all got friends at Westminster and I've never had a criticism from the local populace of Birmingham. And if this is the general attitude of Birmingham, I'm sure that we shall get it to the House of Commons. So this is Birmingham City. The, the, the city of Birmingham and, and the mayor and, and all the civic dignitaries trying to convince Formula One to make Birmingham a Formula One track, a road track like the Monaco road track. I love Birmingham. I love gigging there. I love the people. I love the attitude. I think it's a great place. Um, Al and I have gigged the Glee there loads of times and the hotel is, you can, I know exactly where this road is and where this yeah, roundabout yeah. is, this show. And, and yeah, same here. I've driven this. Yeah, because it's right, that is right where we stay and that's right where the club is and yeah, so what they wanted to do in 71 was essentially they'd have this new dual carriageway through the middle of town and these big sweeping bends and these big roundabouts and nice cambers on the road. So yeah. Thought, well, let's, let's, uh, let's make this a Grand Prix venue. Obviously never happened. When the mayor's there talking about they then go talk to um, Graham Hill, Damon yeah. Hill's dad, who's unspeakably yeah. oh. glam. I mean, what that pencil moustache... I mean, that beautiful hair, that beautiful accent and he's got. so I mean, different to his son, who yeah. didn't have any of yes. that glamour, as good a racing driver as he was. No, he didn't have an ounce of that. And just a quintessential. He is like David Niven meets Errol Flynn meets, you know, I just I just loved Graham Hill anyway. But that would have been fabulous. I mean, safety-wise nowadays, you, you, you'll see less and less road circuits, not more yeah. and more. But that would have been a thrilling thing. Like, I... Sorry to talk about Toronto again, but Toronto had an IndyCart circuit downtown. Well, I lived downtown. A couple of the IndyCarts were there. You could go and have a look at them, and, and uh, they're amazing to look at. But the noise was incredible. 
when they had, when they had the race downtown. Just just yeah, the warm up laps and the revving and stuff, and it was brilliant. It's like when you're playing on a. I don't play a lot of computer games. But when you play driving games, you can pick. You're driving through Las Vegas, or you're driving through Paris, or you you can pick the background. When you see actual racing cars racing through a city, it looks brilliant. Yeah, it yes. looks like it looks like it doesn't look real. Birmingham always gets a bit of stick, but I I, th- I love the place. Imagine if you'd seen one of those John Player special black and gold Formula One cars from the 70s ripping up towards the bullring. Also, this because this clip is 50 years old, Yeah, all of our British listeners will know what we mean by this, but people do gently tick the piss out of Birmingham. Maybe our foreign yeah. listeners not, might not know how it's seen. But Birmingham is England's second biggest city. It's yeah. England's second city. If it had happened, it would have completely changed the history of Birmingham. Do you know what I mean? Like, like it's one of those things. It, it now because it didn't happen, it looks slightly ridiculous. But the, the mayor says, "Well, I think we talk Birmingham down. I don't think I don't think we are proud enough to come from this place, and I think that we should, you know, be a bit more bullish about it." You know, mayors often say this kind of stuff, and it reminded me of a, a Twitter th- thread I saw this week, where it was an American who's lived in the UK for ten years says the problem with Britain. I don't know where she lived, but she said the problem with Britain is that. People answering the question of how are you with, oh, not too bad, actually, has like seeped into our DNA. (laughs) So it means we never try and improve stuff. Because you would say, oh, not too bad, actually. Oh, I mustn't grumble. Or in Welsh, you'd say, oh, Dumbly Ford, not too bad. Yeah, Yeah, how was your meal? You mustn't grumble. And it was a really (laughs) fascinating thread with British people who'd moved to America. Yeah, uh, other Americans or people from other countries saying, "Yeah, it's it's crazy." And there was this this one reply, <laughs> this uh, English bloke. It was his life's ambition to walk the Appalachian Trail in America, which is mm. you know, two and a half thousand miles, whatever it is. <laughs> which is just you know, it took it must have taken it months. It's this incredible feat of endurance through some of the most beautiful landscapes on earth. When he'd pass people. People would say, how are you? And he'd say, oh, I mustn't grumble, not too bad, surviving. And they all assumed he was having a terrible time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just when, you, when you're English that's, or Welsh, that's how you respond. You don't say, yeah. I'm brilliant, actually, I'm living my dream. This is the best day of my life. <laughs> if somebody's asked me, how are you? And I replied, I'm brilliant, actually, I'm living my dream. People would assume I had a breakdown. To have that sort of, and it seemed to be very short-lived, right? So after the war... Britain was completely bankrupt and skint. The 50s we talked about the other week always looked black and white. They just looked bleak. Yeah. 60s, things are starting to change a bit, you know, thankfully. So this is 71. It's the start of a new decade. The 70s are starting. There seemed to be that little bit of civic pride and ambition and that bit of a spark, right, of him saying, why the, Why shouldn't we have yeah, yeah. Why a not? Grand Prix? Why shouldn't we're the second biggest city in England? We got we got the roads for it. We got, yeah, it's going to cost money, but let's be ambitious. Let's do it. Yeah, you know. And now that it seems laughable that you would think that now, but it would have been an investment. Whenever we, it seems whenever there's things that are, that show a, a bit of ambition that need a bit of faith. There was a thing closer to home where they were talking about the they were going to build. Um, well, there's been numerous things. They were going to do the uh, the tidal lagoon in Swansea. Yeah, they yeah. They were going to do things in Cardiff. They were going to you know. All these things were going to happen, and they don't happen, you know. And then people think you're mad for having this pipe dream. Always a pipe dream. Eh, there's nothing wrong with pipe dreams. You know, have a bit. We, we, yeah. When we talked about the dickheads last week about all the bloody the tools who, who ruin football for some people, right? It, wouldn't it be nice to be positive about where you're from? Not in not in a in a way that 
is negative or, or reflects on anybody else, right? That would have been Birmingham is saying, we love Birmingham, let's do this, right? Yeah. And that's not, and they're doing that without slagging off anybody else. Yeah. It's just a proper, it's that nice civic pride. Not, there's, no, there's no negative side to that. Well, building yourself up doesn't have to be putting someone else down, does it? Yeah, they're not saying... Exactly that, What yeah. we'll do, we'll invest in a Formula One track for Birmingham and, fingers crossed, it will absolutely destroy the economies of Leicester, Nottingham and Coventry. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. If, if we yeah. could put Donington Park, Silverstone, both out of business yeah, yeah, by doing yeah. this, we will be really happy. We could destroy Brands Hatch. That would be yes. our plan, having gone personal. Because how good would a bloody... would a Formula One race on Birmingham have been? Coming back to the... Uh, Oh, not too bad. Mass and Grumble surviving thing. Yeah. One theory as to why the Americans don't respond like that is that when America was a very new country with so many people who either didn't speak English or had English as a second language, they didn't understand the nuance in that kind of response. So then you have to be upfront and actually tell people how you're feeling and say, I'm yeah. good, I'm bad, I am moderate. I'm bad. <laughs> I am bad. That's how I am today. As opposed yeah. to all of the yeah cultural baggage that's uh, that that comes along with people saying, "Oh, not too bad, actually." There's loads of these stories of the British Army in World War Two under really, really heavy fire, and the Americans calling them up and saying, "How's it going?" And what you really want to say is, "Well, we're under fire, heavy artillery fire, yeah, shit, loads of us, are, loads of us are dying." But they would all say, well, it's a slightly sticky situation. And then they'd just assume it was fine. <laughs> just go, Brits, Brits are doing well over there. Yeah. <laughs> I saw the best thing I've seen for a long time on uh, socials the other day. And it was a true, apparently, uh, allegedly, I don't know if it is, but it looked like it was a true story of the Germans spent a, went a great time and effort building this fake airstrip. Obviously, both sides did this, trying to divert the, the enemy's energy to the to the wrong place right but the germans spent a long time building this airstrip fake wooden vehicles fake airplanes fake aircraft wooden aircraft hangars went on for months they thought under the and completely covert right the day that it finished months later the RAF flew over and dropped one wooden bomb on it <laughs> i imagine me and the germans are seeing that come down it'd be hilarious wouldn't it <laughs> As if we say, yeah, we know what you're doing, that's fine. Wait yeah, till the last day and then drop a wooden button <laughs> in the middle of it. But um, yeah, so that bit around, so up through the, the main drag there from the ball ring around the roundabout, I don't know where else it would go, it would be quite a short circuit, I'd imagine. But Monaco does it, I mean, but Monaco's always done it. I don't know how much longer they can do it for. It's always lovely as well, because I, I love old cars, obviously, right? The cars in that clip are great. And then when they go round that road, they, in the yeah. fella, in a, I think he's driving a Triumph Stag, but he's like, I think he's, he's a, he's a uh, he's a, a touring car champion. Yeah he's a, yeah, he's a touring car champion. But obviously, given the speed limits that they've already talked about, yeah. he can only do it at thirty miles an hour. But he was saying this would this would be a ninety mile an hour turn. That I'd probably get up a hundred, hundred and ten around here, and it would be slower, and there'd be less there'd be less chances to overtake them on a, on a big track circuit, like when you watch Monaco Grand Prix. Well, because yeah, yeah, there's very little overtaking in that. But I love it. I mean, that's it. Just looks like we talked about the TT before, and I think I'll pick that dock as my next stop. The one about the Dunlops. It looks so much faster when when you go past buildings and past stuff. Yeah, yeah. It would look nuts to see to see thirty Formula One cars driving past Debenhams. Yeah, <laughs> it would look amazing, wouldn't it? <laughs> Christ, it'd be loud. So driving low. past Superdrug at two hundred and ten miles an hour. <laughs> the world's riskiest zebra crossing. Yeah. <laughs> go now, guys. Go, 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 go. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Fucking now, go move. 
Wow, that guy is desperate to buy some razor blades. <laughs> yeah, so good for them. I watched that and thought, bloody hell, that, that bit of ambition, that bit of... That you know, bit where of ambition that was, that was completely thwarted has left Burnley. Because some twats, like we today. saw that thing the other day about Admiral, and the, and the government sent some pricks, and I can show you real poverty. I can take you to Africa and show you some real oh, poverty, yeah, 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 fucking yeah. knob. That would have been some pen pusher saying, we can't afford this. We can't do that. Well, what are we going to spend it on then? What are we going to spend it on instead? Obviously, it's going to cost a lot of money up front, but how will this change the city? How will this change the UK? Also, it wouldn't have failed, would it? Like Formula One. Well, it's not like Formula One's a flash in the pan. And they want things to succeed when they try them as well. So the yes, nighttime races, true. the America well, stuff, the they've always stuff, really yeah. wanted to make stuff work. Do you know what's a good example of um, a place that people take the piss out of that does show some ambition? Is Newport on the Ryder Cup, which I, for that's a great, which for great years analogy. was a, a joke. People used to that's laugh out loud at the idea. That was one person. That was Terry yeah. Matthews thinking, "We can do this. Yeah. Why can't we do it?" Because he's a Newport boy who ended up being a billionaire. Thinking, "Well, fuck it. I've got a nice hotel. I'll build my own course. I'll bring the Ryder Cup." Because they were talking about that throughout the nineties, the idea of Newport holding the Ryder Cup. And you'd see journalists with a slight smirk saying, and Terry Matthews's continued efforts to bring the Ryder Cup to Newport because it sounded ridiculous and then it happened. Well, it does sound ridiculous. You see the ones in America and the sunshine and, you know, they all look really exotic. And I'm from Newport. Yeah. It's yeah. not exotic. And it pissed down, didn't it? No. Yeah, and it pissed down. <laughs> but then create, they managed to turn that into this fantastic Monday. Well, they had the extra day. Then not long after that, you got a conference and there's like Barack Obama staying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which that is would never important. happen before. But now you can say, well, yeah, we've done, we've done some of this before. We, we, we hosted the Ryder Cup. I mean, we can... Yeah. Do, we can this we is can get beyond our capabilities. Here. Now they've got that huge conference centre there that's, that's massive. They've got one of the biggest hotels in the country. Park your Chinook over there, come in, <laughs> in the party. Have a bit but, of ambition, mate, isn't it? But it would have cost us a lot of money, though. But I'm, I'm not from Newport. Having remembered... The way people dis- discussed that bid for so long, well over a decade, when it did happen, I did think, "Good fuck you." <laughs> I mean, it didn't stop me um, making some quite ch- cheap jokes about it on stage at the Cardiff Glee, but um, you know, going to get laughs. Yeah, mate. I had to get laughs at a premium. Yeah. Absolutely, premium laughs. <laughs> Let's make fun of the nearest. What's city. the film Graham Hills in? Is it the? Is it Grand? Is it the film Grand Prix? Oh, what a dashing bloke. Dashing, yeah. that's the word, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, we haven't got a lot of dashing people left anymore. I saw Lewis Hamilton the other day. Yes, he's not Fantastic dashing. achievement. Obviously, he's wearing a, a, a fireproof suit, fair play. You know, he doesn't want to burn to death. I can, I can understand that. No, it's fair, yeah. But it's not Graham Hill, is it, in a, in a, with a little thin pencil moustache? A... I can imagine Graham Hill like, racing in a suit. I would have personally loved to have seen Formula oh, yeah. 1. It's also around the same time. That we mentioned this before, the Telly Savalas did those. Yes, yes, yes. Those visit, and he did the one for Birmingham. Yeah, and Portsmouth. Birmingham, as well. my kind of my town. My kind of town. The Bull Ring is the housewife's choice when it comes to shopping. If you want to go to the indoor market there, you can buy a big selection of pig's heads in the one place. <laughs> oh, lovely. It's not as good, obviously. So uh, I'll just have some cashews, sorry. What a lovely sound effect. Well, I've eaten all that. Granddad with the pit pony. Didn't have these pleasures. You'd have had a proper packed lunch made by my nan. Yeah, yeah he would. Well, I'm having a handful of cashew nuts. 
So it swings and roundabouts, isn't it? It is swings and roundabouts, isn't it? Cashew dust in your lungs is not <laughs> even really similar, is it? Thick bread. Yeah. Proper cut with a knife, not not like sliced. Cheese. And I imagine like cheese or jam. Yeah. Yeah. Like cheese and jam. An apple, probably. No, we wouldn't have an apple. He had false teeth. Um, Welsh cake. A couple of Welsh cakes. Or a scone. And some speed. Lovely. Actually, for camp coffee. Absolutely. Two of whiz. Lots of amphetamines. Gets you through the shift. Two wraps of whiz and some poppers were after. Ah, right, Al. For the big party back on the social. (laughs) It's your documentary choice this week. I am becoming increasingly fascinated by the Tour de France and so expect my interest in the Tour de France to dictate my next book choices and my documentary choices for the next three months because I've just realised there's this rich now the whales are out of the Euros there's, <laughs> there's this rich seam of cycling documentaries um, which I'm working my way through at the moment and this is about uh, it's called Slaying the Badger and is part of the ESPN 30 for 30 series Bernard was not in the best shape because of the crash in Saint-Étienne you can see there the terrible black eyes of Bernard Eno. He got dropped. And Le Bond, who will come into the picture now. And Greg went with Stephen Roach, who had attacked. And my assistant director, Maurice Legu, he went behind the break with Greg. Maurice called me and said, Greg wants to ride with Stephen Roach. And I said, no way, no way, no way. They started the race first and second. You know, Hino was leading, Lamond was second, Roche was third. As they were on the road, you know, going over some mountains with Greg working with Roche, the team was looking at finishing the day in first and third. So the word from Coakley, what he told me is, I told Greg, you can't work with the guy in third to leapfrog over your teammate. Even though, you know, to you personally, it'd be great. And, you know, as a teammate of any team, it's like, well, that makes perfect sense. Up front, the argument goes on. Le Monde rebels against the team's instructions. He angrily attempts to persuade his coach that he should be given the chance to win the tour. I suggested that Greg would attack Stefan Roach and drop him and gain time on Roach, maybe even win the stage. They wanted he know to win. And they told me he was 45 seconds behind. In reality, he was four, four or five minutes behind. He makes the point that he was told that Eno was only seconds behind him, whereas he was minutes behind it, him. It's, it's, it's not a key question. So, the 1986 Tour de France, widely regarded as the greatest Tour de France of all time. Interesting for many, many reasons. Mainly because the two best cyclists of their era were both... Uh, riding for the same team and cycling is an interesting sport in that regard because it's yeah. an individual sport that's contested by teams and you can't win the Tour de France without the help of the other eight riders in your team and so even if you're capable of winning it yourself if your coach and your team owner hasn't decided that it's your year then you don't get to win it because you've got to ride yeah on behalf of someone else. So this so this was the um, problem that Geraint Thomas faced for so many years in his career, because even though he was clearly good enough to win the Tour de France, he was riding on behalf of people like 
Chris Froome or um, Bradley Wiggins. He was a, a domestique and then he became known as a, a super domestique because a domestique, a support rider, you know, he was an ultra talented support rider and it's ridiculous, you know, if if the person who's leading the pack in your team, say, has a puncture, then you've, sometimes you've got to give them your bike, which just doesn't seem fair. And, you know, a lot of the tactics, are, you know, this, is a, this is a very simplistic explanation, but a lot of the tactics are based on the fact that it's easier to ride if you've got people riding in front of you because they're cutting up the wind and they're making things more aerodynamic. So, which means that you need to expend less energy so you can save your energy for when you really need to use it. So you're killing yourself, you know, on behalf of someone else who then, when it really matters, gets to speed off and potentially win the race. Now, Greg LeMond, who is in this documentary, plays a big part in it, had done that for Bernard Hinault, who won the Tour five times, the last French person to win the Tour in 1985. But it was Le Mans' turn. Eno was coming to the end of his career and he said at the end of the 1985 tour, he said, this is my last... He basically, I'm paraphrasing, he says, basically, this is my last one. Next year, I will help Greg to win it because he's helped yeah. me so much. So that yeah. was the agreement that was made in public. This was made to the press. So Le Mans thought... Well, because, he, because Le Mans could have won it the year before. Yeah, yeah. And, and held back to let Eno win Yeah, yeah. So um, Eno then wins his... Uh, fifth tour, which I think is a it's a record, isn't it? <laughs> so, so Le Monde has thrown away the 80... Well, thrown away, but because he's a team player, like all cyclists are in a mad way, he's, he's thrown away his chance of winning the 85 tour. And when you think about it, so few cyclists win the tour. Like, there are so many competing. There's only a handful, really, who are capable of winning it because you've got to be a good sprinter, you've got to be a good climber. Yeah. You've got to be able to... You've got to be so well-rounded as, a, as an athlete... If you're one of the four or five who's actually capable of winning it, really, you've got to go for it because you might not get another chance or you might have a crash or you might get injured or whatever. So Le Mans in this massive thing in 85 by helping out Eno and then Eno to um, repay the gesture said, all right, well, I'll help you next year. And then in 1996... Stiffs him. Stiffs him. And doesn't seem to be fulfilling his side of the bargain at all in the way that he's attacking Le Monde and the way that he's racing. is He's aggressively racing. It looks like he's trying to ruin it for Le Monde. So then you've got the interesting scenario of the best riders are all in the same team. That team was probably one of the strongest teams ever in the history of the race. And what looks like a broken promise and a friendship that's been destroyed over the course of a three-week road race. You know, probably the world's biggest endurance race and you know, the world's biggest and hardest sporting feats. So there's this friendship breaking up live on telly, which makes it tremendously compelling viewing. Because I watch a lot of sport. I love watching some of this novel to me, right? And, and, I, and I can learn on this new to me, right? So I've, been, I've been casually observing cycling for 30 years. I've never really understood the peloton, never understood how the Tour de France works or the teams actually work. Okay. I've, I've appreciated the athleticism of the blokes and the endurance of the people who do it. I find this fascinating on loads of levels. This, I think, I think it's really, really well made. I love the way when he's talking to Hino now. Hmm. There's not subtitles. There's not. It's not like a back and forth with the translator. You know, yeah. you'll speak it all in French, and then there's like a pace. But you sort of get what's going on, even though it's all in yeah. French. Yeah. God, I had a wicked house envy of everyone. In yeah, it. that's true. <laughs> the houses they all live in are something else. But I found it absolutely fascinating, the whole thing. Like him starting off in America and him saying there was no 
history and no tradition of cycling as a, as a sport really here at and all. And they thought that the Europeans were just built differently. Yeah, just untouchable. So there's him and his old man in that in that old Type 2 camper going up and down California racing together, you know? Yeah. We always talk about you know, someone could have done something. Yeah, but you didn't, right? He packed everything in to go to Europe with his missus. And they say, and they, they got married like 19 and 20. Yeah, they'd only and met each other 16 times. Yeah. Her folks come over to see him in France. They don't speak French. No one on the team speaks English. She said, he looked like he was in a prisoner of war camp because we weren't eating enough food and he was just training all the time. We had nothing. We had, we had nothing at all. Yeah, no running water. It would have been so easy to pack that in. Because they didn't speak French at that stage. They were unable to improve their circumstances. So there's an mm. um, interesting bit in the football book, Soconomics, where nowadays if you're an Argentinian and you've been bought by Liverpool or Man United or Man City and you come over and you, went, and you don't speak English, they have people at the club mm. to help you, yeah. you know, to help you settle in and they will make sure that you live in the right part of town and they'll get your kids a decent school and all that kind of stuff and they'll make sure that your wife, if you're married, has friends who might speak Spanish or whatever the language is. No one helped them on. So yeah, he, he ended up becoming fluent in French, but he, he was completely thrown in at the deep end. It, not only was he the first American to win a stage, obviously he was the first American to win the tour, but you know the first American to win a stage, he was actually the first person from an English-speaking country to win the tour. Before Le Monde, it was 90% French, Belgian or Italian. Yeah. There's a couple of sort of Dutch guys Spanish in the mixer well. there as well. And then you're going to get like Ingerine and people like that afterwards. But the combination of him, I mean, Armstrong is obviously, you know, the period which is counts as no winner yeah now, i think the combination of him stephen roach from ireland yes and, and stephen roach's team they were criticized quite heavily for having too many english-speaking cyclists mm. in the in the late 80s well, i think what you see now with the british guys you know Froome wiggins which is an interesting there's a couple of times where Froome was told to pull back on wiggins as well so there's a similar sort of rivalry within that team at the time as well but you look at those british wins and without those without this Without Le Mans, without Roach, I think without Boardman at the Olympics as well, then you just don't get the investment that you got in the sport because it yeah, wasn't yeah. an English-speaking sport, really. Well, they say even that fellow who took over that team. Well, Tappy's interesting bloke because I remember him as the chairman of Marseille. So he was chairman of the Marseille of Marseille when they won the Champions League in 1993. But they still, at least, I mean, it was like based in the 20s and 30s still cycling. That hadn't changed since before the war. And he came in and revolutionised cycling. You know, whatever you want to say about Tappy, he, he made the modern tour what the, what the modern tour is. I found the history of it fascinating. I tell you what was nice for me as a sports fan. They didn't gloss over the land stuff. And I was wait. I will put my hands up and say that I have been convinced, because of the stuff that Lance Armstrong said in his interviews, that everybody in cycling dopes. And they, they've all done it. Because I know there's been a history of it in cycling for over 100 years, right? But that everyone did it all the but time. It, it, and I watched this. I watched this and I thought, when his dad was talking about, when Lamont's dad was talking about, I thought, this is nice because I believe you. I believe yes. you didn't do EPO. I believe you uh, that you weren't juiced. I believe that you weren't dope. Well, I, and that's a nice thing to have that faith restored. I believe him because in the 90s, he said these cyclists came along and I was still a relatively young man and they were destroying me. And I just yeah. couldn't understand you- how they were recording these incredible times. Well, also, 
we have done a Greg LeMond clip before because I did the clip mm. right at the start of this podcast where he wins the 89 tour, is it? Yeah, the 89 tour. <laughs> He's got like 80 pellets in his lungs, chest and kidneys because he got shot by his brother-in-law on a hunting trip. Turkey shooting. <laughs> and he's got lead poison from it now. Well, that, that, who's the coach there? What's his name? Um, oh, Paul oh. Cochley, is that how you say it? The, the, Co- Cochley, yeah, Co- it? the Swiss guy. There's a bloke I wouldn't trust as far as I can No, try. and he actually <laughs> changes his story <laughs> mid-sentence. Oh, I mean, fair play to him. He was a, obviously a good coach. And he looks like Larry David. But there is no way in the world... <laughs> he, does. Yeah, he does. There's no way in the world that he suddenly came up with that new, you know, everyone's going to race their best philosophy they can say what they like they didn't want america winning the tour of france Eno was worshipped i mean at one stage the director of the tour says listen people want Eno oh, to this win it's crazy and i think a journalist said to le monde you do realize that 80 percent of the cyclists on this tour want Eno to win and all of the fans want you want Eno yeah. to win as well he i read about this he said um well i'm surprised you say that 20 percent want me to win and then the director of the tour takes him to one side and says, listen, be careful, because people... So Lamont's dad's got to make his food. Yeah, yeah. Because they're going to poison mm. his food and his water bottles. Yeah, so it? they don't know if... Yeah. <laughs> so he, so then he do, he never he doesn't eat, he doesn't eat with his team. And he yeah. doesn't drink Imagine anything... the level of paranoia you've got to, though, by then. Yeah, but he, he, oh, he doesn't drink anything the team have given him, It's unless it's his parents or his wife. I tell you why I thought this is a brilliant doc, and I'm using, I don't use that lightly, right? They're real good guys and bad guys, and there's a, there's a great story in it. Eno looks unspeakably glamorous yes. in the 80s. So French and so fucking cool. <laughs> and then when he's meeting him in that sort of cafe now for the interview, they bring yeah. this bottle of, red, bottle of red in to say so thanks for the interview. And he's got that little glint in his eye, and you think, I can't dislike you. Man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? yeah. Because you are what you are is an absolute died. In, and you watch the way you race, some of those crashes, Jesus Christ, this is... What are you doing 60 mile an hour and crashing at that speed? With no helmet that on. he goes off the edge of the road. Yeah. I thought he must be dead. You can't be that competitive and that focused in the most difficult event in world sport five years in a row and then switch off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That doesn't happen. Well, in the, I think it's the 85 tour, they do stage 18, Le Monde and Eno, hand in hand. I love that. What a photograph. So they do that hand in hand and they're, they're discussing it. They're like, Le Monde, Eno's like, next year, mate, it's your year and I will ride on behalf of you. But Le Monde had plenty left in the tank. He could have won that race. Yeah. But yeah. he did it because he was a team player. And yeah, I I loved Greg Le Monde at the end of this. I was so impressed with him. And that relationship with him and his wife, they've been together for 40 odd years, yeah. right? Obviously, a great manager between two of them. And she's saying things that obviously, between the, the two of them, you just want anybody else to know that stuff. So when she's saying, like, we, you know, we, we both loved, uh, you know, I, I didn't love him. I didn't love yeah. him. She's the real sort of uh, touch. She's, inter- that, she's an interesting character in it. She's because... giving you the, the, the actual story all the time. And then we're getting the Eno spin and the Le Mans spin. I think she's, she's the always one very saying... present throughout his career as well, which was a rarity yeah. during that era. It's just still a rarity within sport for. Your wife or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whatever it is to be around and those Deirdre glasses, fair play, amazing. But at one stage, they they tried to stop her from coming to training camps, and then they realised yeah. that he was racing and riding better when she was there. And they have a they have a son, I think. And the f- first year of his life, she spent a hundred nights in hotels. But he's a prodigy too. I mean, he he came over twenty years of age. I think he won eight of his first ten races. Like yeah. he was, and it must be if you if you're from a background, especially in America, where it's all about you know second is the first loser and all that sort of stuff. They they bang on about. 
to go into a team and then be told, don't do your best in this. What? Let, let, him, let him win this one. What? <laughs> How does that work? Well, there's, there's multiple competitions in the Tour de France. There's the yellow jersey, you know, the, uh, the general classification, so you're the best rider in the Tour. Then there's the green jersey if you're the best sprinter. There's... I'm like you, though, mate. I can see myself becoming a right Tour de France. In the... Yeah. Well, I'm reading it. I've, I've just put my like first book on it, and it is absolutely fascinating. But they are crazy. Like, when Eno has that awful crash... And he lands on his face and his nose is broken really badly. There's blood everywhere. So he picks his bike up and he, he finishes the stage and then his kid is crying and he picks his kid up and he, and he goes, go on, poke my nose. And his kid goes, oh, pokes his nose. He goes, see, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with me. I don't love his shirt. I just love... It's weird because when we get to your other clip, Steph, yeah. I'll talk about that later, right? Yeah, yeah, but I, but I have similar feelings in this that yeah. I, although they're rivals, for a better word in sport, right? I I love the French. I love the attitude. I love that sort of two fingers to authority. I love their attitude to life. Whenever I've been to France, it's always about you know I'd rather play rugby or whatever. It's always about the wine and the food and the cheese yeah. and the having a lot and being tough on the pit. You're not going to find a tougher bloke by the look of it than that bloody oh god than you know when he's yeah. when he's racing. My God. When Wales played at the Euros in 2016, you know, I visited so many French cities I'd never been to before. And it was, it was fantastic. You know, Toulouse yeah. was amazing. Bordeaux was amazing. I loved Lille. I loved Lyon. Paris, obviously, was great. We'll get too much into the, into the social history of things, but when your social history is based around a royal family and a class system and, you know, that, that all, public school and all these sorts of things, and that is your... It's in your, it's in your DNA as a nation, right? Yeah. If you're French... So we, we always sort of put up with stuff. Our things, yeah, it's okay. We put up with this, put up with this, put up with this, put up with this. The French's history, if you're French, your history is when people got a bit big for their boots, you chop their heads off and change the government. Exactly. The royals would be a pain in the ass. We'll ch- just chop all their heads off. Yeah. We won't have any royals. The French got that lovely fuck you attitude, which I think is brilliant. Well, Eno yeah. is cycling <laughs> and he's about to win a stage and some trade unionists go on strike by oh, barricading that, the he? end of the stage, the end of the route. And he gets off his Love bike and he starts fighting with them. He's punching, punching them. Punching them in the face. And the journalist says, you know, Eno wasn't anti-left or he wasn't anti-trade union. You do not get in his way if he is about to win a race because he's completely single-minded when it comes to him winning races. What about that bit when he said, bad enough with the crowd, Le Mans must have been thinking at some point, cause they, they were all huge Eno fans, you know, Especially those bits in the mountains when they're right by your handlebars. Any one of those could have knocked him off a bike. So you're always twelve and a half million punters on the side of the road watching the tour. Yeah, but then one of Eno's old old uh, race teammates, yes, says to him, "Do you want us to take him out and make him crash?" So it's not just you worrying about the twelve million people watching the race. No, you think another rider's going to grab your handlebars and make you crash? And those descents, I had no idea they went that fast. Those descents, the bits where they're climbing, sort of Alpe d'Huez and those sort of mountains, and you can see the fans on the side. But on the what I would call the wrong side of the road, <laughs> because there's just a huge drop behind them. Yeah, yeah. My God, I'd love to go and see a stage of that. I'm going to do it next year. I was going to, I had all these things I wanted to do before I turned fifty, mm. and because of coronavirus and everything else, that's changed. So now I'm going to make it when I'm fifty. The last couple of weeks, through doing this pod, really, then going to France and watching a stage of the tour is now in that thing that I want to do next year. I've bought a couple of books. I'm reading the first one at the moment. It is a fascinating sport to read about. Like I've I've just bought a book about the the nineteen oh three tour, the first one. And just what what they were willing to do to their bodies is it's crazy. Well, they used to yeah. I mean, there's 
the doping thing. I mean, before they before doping was a thing in sport, they would do it anyway. You know, they would yeah people with morphine and, yeah, and fetamines and brandy wine. or and fetamines go right the way back to the start. Well, Tommy Simpson died because he? he was basically overheated, and they just found amphetamines sewn inside his cycling jersey. His final words were on, 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 because he was the first English cyclist to win a, t- a stage, to win the yellow oh jersey. And yeah, but he just pushed his body to its absolute limit. But, yeah. but oh, in terms I mean, of the paranoia, though, like the peloton is much rougher than you think. So there's a lot of jostling and stuff going on in there. So if you're in the peloton, you're all given the same time, are you? Is that the way that it yeah, works? You are these days, yeah, I think just because of the timing. So if you, whatever group bunch you cross the line with, you know, you'll That's be within a second. It's not worth yeah. the worry, I think, at this sort of level. But also the speed at which that peloton is going, even when they're all, if they all start out and there's the bit where you're not supposed to race at the very start, there's sort of like a procession bit at the very start of each stage. And then they wave you on to go. The speed they're going at that, none of us would be able to ride and not take everyone else down Yeah. at the speed that they're going. Yeah. You, know, you were talking about the other day about marathon runners and how fast they go. You wouldn't be able to compete for 10 seconds. You wouldn't be able to ride with the peloton without you know, making everyone else fall over yeah. for 10 metres. Well, when Al talks about, um, it, it doesn't seem real sometimes. Sport doesn't, like with the basketball clip the other week, that, that seems like a bridge too far. It doesn't seem believable. Yeah. There's that bit there when, so he won the race. He's the first American to ever win it, especially after the year before, and the finish was incredible. Then he gets shot by his brother. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Then he's got to miss the next two or three years because he's recovering from being shot. They yeah. can't get everything out of him. Then he comes back and and wins again from behind. Full of pellets. And he's got to, he's got to take it out with that blood. And, and they said that the fellow he beat in that never really recovered from it mentally. Fignon, yeah. He, look, he just looks like a shell of a man when you see when you see him next to Le Monde. Well, the bit where Le Monde says he you know, he heard later on that Fignon would go to the shops and would count eight seconds because that's how much he lost by. Oh, oh imagine. So, as, as you walk down the road, just oh. going right, okay, one, two, three, four. Five. Oh if I'd have done it this God. quick, I'd have won the tour. Six, I mean, over that, one, seven, eight seconds over two and a half thousand miles must be tough to live with. Yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Could I not have tried a little bit harder? In the previous two and a half thousand miles for the last three weeks? Every drink, that, every dr- sip from a bottle that you had and every wee that you did, you just think, oh, if I hadn't have done that. Well, that bit when Le Mans takes the t- like two minutes 40 yeah. back it off, off uh, Eno. With a you know with a crash and with everything else, the bits when you got the team owner on a, in a car hanging out of a sunroof screaming at the coach who's doing it, and they just think just so much going on. There's, there's so much drama. drama. There's so much theatre, yeah. isn't there? There is. Yeah, it's so fucking French. Yes, just people screaming at each other and having there's like a soap opera going on. It's brilliant. Right, this is the bit where we go our separate ways. Um, I see a change coming to our lives. It's not the same as it used to be, but it's not too late to realize our mistakes. We're just not right for each other. Behind a paywall, Mike will be singing. There's nothing left to do but go our separate ways and pick up all the pieces left behind us. And maybe someday, somewhere along the way, another love will find us. Anyway, that's beautiful. From his last album, that quite sad. Quite sad there's people leaving now, but that's their choice. <laughs> it's quite sad to see you go. You've made a decision. 
Uh, so, on the other side of these adverts, those of you who are on the free version will be getting the book review. Those of you who are on the Patreon version will be getting more content. You will be getting athletics. You will be mm. getting, well, kind of athletics. And you will be getting a bit of cricket as well. So there's all sorts headed your way. But you need to go to patreon.com slash distantpod if you are not on that already. Sign up on there. Various different levels you can sign up on. Four levels, actually. It's not various. There are four levels you can sign up for. You get Mike Lowen's Movie Club, um, which is us talking about films in as much detail as yep. we talk about sports. Yeah. yeah. Um, yep. Which... Might do a sample version of in a few weeks. It's a good idea. On this. Yeah. Might do a sample version. Right, instead of a regular pod, we might give you a Mike Lowen's uh, movie. Hang, hang on now. We're giving them free stuff, are we? Well, no. We, no, 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 no. I think it would be an addition to the ones we do anyway oh, for the Patreons. But just to show them what they're missing. I think, you know, we, we've done we've done the old stick. Let's do a bit of carrot. <laughs> a bit of carrot. I think, bit th- of carrot. I think that might work better. Which sounds like with nail on I. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some Camberwell character is heading your way. <laughs> um, so we might do and that in like, a few d- weeks. Don't forget the live tour, Steph. Okay. Don't forget the live tour. Distantpod.com slash live. Mm. Have a look on there at the dates. September, start for the tour. So very, very, very close now. Also, if you're from Newcastle. Yes. Pull your finger out, will you? <laughs> <laughs> From the northeast, yeah. There's me. There's me. There's me defending you. Telling what a great place it is. It's quite a journey. Not for them if they live there. No, no, for us. Literally down the fucking road. Oh, for us it is. Yeah. Yes. And people still fanning about about Birmingham because they're worried about it being a week. How we? Well. And there's me bigging up Birmingham, saying about what a great city it is, what a great Formula One place. You've literally spent ten minutes doing that today. Yeah. And you know, you're having a good decency to come and see the light. Sorry, Mike. On Monday, and you're worried about work. I've got plans on. Uh... Monday night. Monday, oh, Mike. I can't come now. Could you do Saturday instead? Can't do Monday. Could you do Saturday, Mike? Please. Oh, please, Mike, please. <laughs> the only reason why we can't do it is because we just found gaps in people's schedules. We were trying yes. to find venues to be there. And yes, that was... We did try. That is the only gap that Birmingham had was a Monday night. In fact, because we love Birmingham, we squeezed it in, even though we've got to get back from Edinburgh to do the Birmingham gig. I also had a plan to come back to Cardiff after Edinburgh. Mm. But we're coming via Birmingham. No pressure. No pressure well, at all. I'm not ungrateful, Mike, <laughs> but I won't be there to support your show. Be outside the door. I'm not, I'm not, one of your t-shirts I'm not to ungrateful. sign. No, no, no. What do we all make Chris Cattell will be, though? I was in college with him. He's now uh, head of, uh, I think it's University of Worcester, just a sports science. But um, when I was in uni with him, he, would, he, he turned over several parties uh, empty-handed, right? Sorry, Chris, if, if you are listening, Chris. Uh, so he was a good-looking boy, Chris, blonde hair, Curtains looked like this sort of very surfy looking, but with yeah. a real thick Brummie accent, right? I think he's from Walsall, but West Midlands accent. And uh, so anyway, he always came to the parties empty-handed. So when they brought in screw top beer bottles for the first time, around sort of 94, 95, we got a lot of these screw top beers for the party. I drank the first one. Chris hadn't turned up yet, right? I said, fuck it, I bet Cattell turns up empty-handed again, right? So I peed in the bottle, right? <laughs> Put the top back on and put it in the fridge. Right? What a lovely man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like an hour later, Chris rocks up empty-handed, right? Oh, boosh, I do, mate. All right. I said, yeah, Chris, how are you, mate? And he'd be in the fridge, mate. I said, yeah, I'll, I'll get you one now. So I go and get this bottle of piss, right? Gave him a bottle. He's like, uh, <laughs> and me and Simon Blanks, who you know. Yeah. We take the tops off, we're having a little drink. 
Chris takes a sip, he goes, but your taste's funny. <laughs> I said, what do you mean funny, mate? He said, they're with it. We're all drinking the same stuff. I said, it'd be all right. There's another little swig. He goes, tastes like olive oil or something. I said, olive oil? I said, olive just, oil. Just, I said, mate, just beer. I said, you probably brush your teeth before you came out and you got the toothpaste and making a bit of a reaction with it, whatever. You know, it'd be fine. I said, have a, have a proper swish. You'd be have all right. Have a real glug. So he takes a big glug and he goes, it's piss! <laughs> <laughs> He was horrified, obviously. Yeah. Well, yeah. Clear, yeah. But you made him on the upside, <laughs> yeah, it makes like a nuclear option. But on the upside, next yeah. party, yeah, he brought his own beers, didn't he? Yeah. Bottle of Pinot Grigio. If it was that, I'd drink piss. What would you? Do? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've never knowingly drunk piss. I would be. Up- if you listen to this, Chris, I do apologise for making you drink piss, but you know it's done out of love. Absolutely disgusted to drink piss. He was. He, he was drink weed. I'd go especially with somebody else's. I'd be unable to see the funny side of that. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. find that amusing. I when you're drunk and you're 22... Not bring it... I wouldn't come to any more parties. <laughs> no. Due to the fact yeah, that people bullied would. me at the last party. Because I'd be scared of eating a sandwich and this shit to <laughs> Due to... Yeah. <laughs> Due to the fact that big boys made me drink piss the last Yeah, the big day. boys bullied me. I am not coming to your silly yeah. parties anymore. I wouldn't do it do now. Do you know what I'd do? But... I'd work harder on my essay. He's obviously done well for him. He's still a good-looking boy, man. I googled him. Yeah? Good-looking fella still. Still got a lovely waist on him as well. Slim. So, yeah, if you're listening, Chris, I apologise. But come to our live show. I might work on my upper body for the live show so I can wow be nice. people with both yeah, halves nice. of me. Both halves? Yeah, as I walk on stage. The first half and well, second half of the show. <laughs> your bums are, your bums one are top's talking. One tops off, one bottom's off. That's that. I told that to my kids the other day. My, my daughter found that highly amusing. But I thought that is quite juvenile, making someone drink wee. Yeah. So if, if you're a kid, that's funny. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If you're downwards of ten... Yeah. I would say that's very, very funny. Or in your 20s doing a sports degree. <laughs> yes. Same, same thing. <laughs> exactly the same thing. Right. We are headed off behind the paywall, people. So patreon.com slash distant pod is where you go. Have a look at it. Bottom tier is four quid a month. Plus VAT. Because people have been saying, it's not actually four quid. It's four quid plus VAT. Yeah. It's like when someone gives we, you... Yeah, we, we don't get the four. Someone No. Someone gives you a quote for your bathroom. They just write plus VAT on it as well. Okay, chill. Yeah. So four quid a month, uh, and you get the bonus content. Ta-ra. Right, let's bring this episode to a conclusion. A few little different recordings on this app, but this is your book, and it is Mike's turn for book choice. Yeah, now somebody who knows who they are recommended this to me. Um it's called No Helmet Required by a man called uh, Gavin Willisy. I probably pronounce it that way. Have you two ever read a book? Yes. Yes. You <laughs> just <laughs> show offs. <laughs> well, I have as well now. Um, <laughs> no, fuck off. Have you Have you ever read a book that you felt was written for you? Oh yeah, yeah. Mm, not yet. No. I'm not kidding you. So when he sent me. The he said I'm I'm reading the book you'd love this book it takes all your boxes I clicked on it I had an old read of it I bought there was one paperback remaining at the time on Amazon I bought it straight away bought it within like a minute of reading that it came the next day it is absolutely fabulous right everything about it so it looks gorgeous the, the artwork on the front is is beautiful it's, it's only a a paperback. The way it's laid out, I've never seen. I've never seen a book like it. So it, it's it's a story about a, a rugby league team in the nineteen fifties in America. So I'll I'll, mm. I'll read you the back cover. Nineteen um, fifties Los Angeles, 
Motormouth sports promoter Mike Demetrio convinces 20 young American football players to join him on a trip of a lifetime. Demetrio called them the American All-Stars and flew them around the world to play rugby league, a game none of them had seen or even heard of, never mind played. They played against the very best of Australia, New Zealand and France had to offer. They took on world-class rugby players on the pitch, mixed with celebrities off it and wooed the women of every town they descended on. Somehow they survived. Behind the media circus there were fights and flings, tragic illnesses and farcical court cases. Demetrio fought with authorities, teammates and the law. He changed his name, his age, his home and his wife time after time. Yet his extraordinary life story is matched blow for blow by the All-Stars, who counted amongst their number Hollywood stuntmen, an Olympic medalist and a future NFL champion. Right wow. now, that sounds cool. So this fella, oh mate, but the way he's laid it out. So anyway, this Mike Demetrio um, was a Eastern European, uh, his family came over uh, during the First War, ends up in West Virginia, which is a, at, the, at the time a really poor part of America, in the coal fields. He sort of grows up as a kid watching Welsh coal miners uh, in between shifts, playing rugby on the slag heaps. Very, very tough upbringing, super, I mean, just dirt poor. Dad's an alcoholic and um, joins the army. He's, he's in all these, some of the biggest theatres of war, the, of the Second World War. Very, very good football player when, when he joined the army, played um, in bowl games and was very tough. Played both sides of the ball as well, offence and defence. And after the war, it just becomes this sort of, in that sort of post-war period when, when there wasn't an awful lot of anything, some people just try to make the most of it and they, and they were all the hucksters and, and yeah, they were just yeah. you know what I mean he, he was he was one of those and the upshot of it all was he, he was on he was on leave uh, in the Pacific part of the war gets a flight to Australia on a, on, a, on a transport plane and the Australian pilot was a rugby league player so he could take him to see a rugby league game he thinks it's the greatest thing he's ever seen right and he just thinks that rugby league is going to be the world sport he loves it and he wants to be on it early if you don't mind I'm going to do I just the opening page, two pages maybe. I just thought, go on. I can't believe there's a book that mentions all this, right? Let me just start off a prologue, right? And you can stop me whenever you want with this, right? But I haven't got my glasses on. But I'm gonna. Five men in the city of angels. A Hollywood film star, an English broadcaster, an Australian hack, a Californian sports writer, and a Welsh rugby coach. They've nothing in common. Well, almost nothing. Bob Hope is one of the world's biggest film stars. He part owns the LA Rams the glamorous West Coast pro football franchise, which employs Mr. Jane Russell at quarterback. They have fans throughout Hollywood and at Beverly Hills headquarters. Eddie Waring is the voice of BBC Radio Sport in the north of England. Oh, wow. A sport in Svengali from Dewsbury in Yorkshire. He has a vision, seeing his beloved rugby league football beamed live in the living rooms across Britain and around the world. He just wishes the BBC would share his faith in this new medium called television. Harry Sunderland is a 60-year-old from Toomba Australia. He's done pretty much everything in rugby league a journalist, a secretary for Queensland Rugby Football League in his early 20s, Australia's national team manager at 40, a 50 emigrated and managed English Giants Wigan. Now he's back writing for the Sunday Dispatch, commentating on BBC Radio and living in Manchester. Sunderland is fearless, an expansionist, a promoter, a rugby league missionary, a stocky little fella, round glasses perched on the moon face, his nickname is The Little Dictator. Cliff Evans is a former rugby league star, a man of the match in the 1933 Ch- Challenge Cup final. He was a top-class halfback for Salford, Leeds and his native Wales, either side of the war. He had a spell as a parachute jump instructor, quit playing and became a coach at Leeds. After two years, gave it all up and left Yorkshire for California. In LA, he sets to work transferring his ample skills within two years of arriving. He'd managed a theatre, a car wash, a restaurant in Venice Beach. He is an athletic, dapper figure. And B. Ward Nash is a middle-aged, fair-haired print salesman in downtown LA. He writes about sport on the weekends and uses his printing business to publish sports books. 
he rarely leaves the home without his Panama hat on. Sunderland and Waring were on, on the way home from Great Britain Ashes tour. The team spent a month travelling to Australia by boat, played 27 games in less than three months, and took another month to come home. Sunderland and Waring had followed the Australian leg in three weeks in New Zealand, with personal stopovers in Fiji, Honolulu and San Francisco. There were visits to Dallas, Chicago and New York to come. Sunderland was in town to promote Rugby League, or perhaps more accurately, to promote Harry Sunderland and Rugby League. Waring was pretended to Sunderland's crown as Mr Rugby League, 20 years the younger. Waring had, like Sunderland, already been a club secretary, a manager, an author, a newspaper columnist, a BBC radio commentator, an expansionist. Waring knew Cliff Evans from their time at Leeds together, where Eddie was then become a manager. Waring and Sunderland wrote for the rival Rugby League papers and were the only two pressmen at the formation of the Rugby League International Board two years earlier. They both knew more about overseas opportunities than most. Sunderland had tried to launch a 13-man football code in Victoria, London, France, and for the past 20 years, America. In 1932, he went to the LA Olympics and took the opportunity to visit some of football's major movers and shakers. He spent time with the University of Southern California coach Howard Harding-Jones, the legendary Pop Warner up at Stanford, and met players from NFL teams like Portsmouth Spartans and the Green Bay Packers. Excited by the prospect of rugby league crossing over to the US, Harry aimed high. He wrote to the Chicago Bears owner, George Haler, suggesting the Australian team play an exhibition rugby league game in Chicago en route to England the following year. The legendary Haylis was interested and proposed they play the Bears in September 1933 as part of the World's Fair. One half of rugby league, another half of American football. It, not, it never happened, but little Harry never gave up. Anyway, so it just goes on. Wow. So w- within like the first two pages, there's my probably my favourite rugby league commentator anywhere. Yeah. There's Bob Hope, who as yeah. well as being, at the time, one of the biggest Hollywood stars, also had parents who were, as we both know, yes. from that. He was conceived <laughs> yeah, in yeah. Barry. He's conceived in Barry. You've got the Green Bay Packers, you've got George Haylis, you've got Pop Warner, you've got the... You've got the, you've got the the Chicago Bears, you've got Rugby League, Eddie Waring, Bob Hope. I mean, it's just... Brilliant. And then Dimitro himself. This, his story is, is fascinating. And the way, so anyway, the way it's sent out, he, the author, eventually, he's got it all ready to send off to the publishers, all done. When Dimitro's widow sends him this huge box full of his clippings. Right. Everything he'd ever done and been in and all the stuff, all the, all the aircraft tickets. So the whole book... I'll just not hold it up for you to see. I mean, it you... sounds about as believable as a million beads. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there's one quote about him. Where's it gone? About I got to read this. I got to get this one about Dimitro because I thought you'd say that. This is it is like my bees thing. Where's it gone? <laughs> oh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. So this is this is another bit about Mike Dimitro, who's the fellow that starts the team. In the steaming heat of the Pacific Theatre, Dimitro was still getting his sporting fix. He boxed in the Carolines and played football for the Hawaiian Island All-Star team. Between all the boxing, football, baseball and wrestling, Dimitro claimed to have served in the Philippines, Guam, Japan, Tarawa, where the Japanese were massacred on the 20th of November 1943, Saipan, where the US forces ousted the Japanese in July 44, Okinawa, where the battle in 1945 was arguably the worst in the Pacific. He just happened to have been at all four of the major US successes of the whole war. Dimitro liked to tell a tall tale. He just couldn't help himself. Much of it, however, unlikely was true, but the truth was never enough. So it's got rugby league, <laughs> rugby coach from Wales, Bob and oh, tall tales, and tall tales. Well, you, but but like the Bubbins memoirs. like my good self. When you scratch it, mm. what seems to be tall tales are actually true. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Like my million bees, <laughs> right? yeah. which which hasn't even happened yet. It will happen in a future. <laughs> <podcast. laughs> right. <laughs> But I, honest to God, you know, I'm not a prolific reader, as we all know. Yeah. But I have been reading this. It is reading the shit one of the best of things I've ever read. No helmets required. 
the remarkable story of the American All-Stars by Gavin Wallacey. And it is the layout, the feel of it, the look of it, the story, the people. I just absolutely love it. So there we go. I, I, can't recommend, I cannot recommend that highly enough. Fantastic. Thank you, Mike. <sighs> so we'll have another one of these episodes headed your way this time next week, which will contain a story that yes. I still don't believe. Yeah, sorry, that Million Bees uh, reference um, hasn't happened yet. It's very Back to the Future they're recording this. I like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it's good. It's a tease. It's a tease. It's, good, it? it's a cheesy gag. Yeah. A Million Bees. <laughs>